This is Jocko Podcast number 94 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. The black cloud of smoke exploded silently outside the open door of the Dakota, obscuring for the moment my view of the geometrical Dutch landscape, deserted but for a few forlorn cows. As soon as the sea had appeared below us, I started to think about the flak, and I knew that everyone else in the aircraft must be worrying as well. When we crossed the East Anglican coastline, that slight wave of movement had flickered down the aircraft as the men checked their watches, calculating the time it would take to fly over the sea and come within range of the now-alerted German anti-aircraft guns. Below us, the air-sea rescue launches of the RAF dotting the water at precise intervals were pleasantly comforting. The narrow band of beach, which was the coast of Holland, had aroused us once again. As the flooded fields flashed into view, Private Harrison had leaned across to point out the guns on the ground shooting up at the massed ranks of our aircraft. At the sound of my Batman's voice, which had been silent for the past hour, the men near to the open doorway had craned forward to see what they could, while the rest, anxious for the first indications of the enemy, had twisted their necks to peer through the small windows at their backs. At first I could see nothing. And I was stupidly aggravated that everyone but myself could spot gun flashes. Then came that cloud of smoke, producing an odd sense of satisfaction, a reaction which immediately shamed me. This was the behavior of a small boy. For all that, it was satisfying not to feel scared by it. Perhaps it was because the experience was not only novel, but in some way impersonal. Looking down the dark tunnel of the aircraft at the double line of soldiers, it was a relief to see that all traces of nervousness had disappeared. We had been waiting a long time for this. So that is the opening of a book called Men at Arnhem. And it was actually sent to me by a guy by the name of James Fenelon. And the book was originally published under the pseudonym Tom Angus. And it was about this battle at this place called Arnhem, which is in Holland. And in the book, the units that are doing the fighting, they're not identified. They don't say what units they are. But shortly after the book was published, it became very clear and it was revealed that the author was an individual named Jeffrey Powell, a British Army officer, and that the unit that the book talks about was the 156th Parachute Battalion of the British Army who fought against all odds and really with misfortune after misfortune for eight days during Operation Market Garden which is a famous World War II operation, a bold and super aggressive plan. And also the largest airborne operation up until that point. And the goal was to isolate parts of the German forces and to cut off 
what's known as the Ruhr district, which is like the heart of German industry, and then open up a, a route going from through that whole area, take control of the roads and the bridges, and be able to punch right into the heart of Germany. Over 40,000 airborne troops took part in the operation, including America's 82nd Airborne and the 101st Airborne Divisions. But the deepest, the, those that jumped deepest into enemy territory were from the British, British 1st Airborne Division, and that included this battalion, the 156th Parachute Battalion. And if you know anything about Operation Market Garden, although it did achieve some beneficial things, overall the mission was considered a failure because it didn't actually achieve the objectives that it wanted to achieve. And as you can imagine, those that were furthest out suffered some absolutely catastrophic casualties and people taken prisoner and people killed in action and and this is only an eight day this is eight days long so this this period that we're about to cover is only eight days long and you're gonna see that it is it is vicious and the names were changed in this book but again this is an accountant an account from one of the company commanders inside this battalion So, obviously the opening was them flying over to the English Channel and getting ready to jump in to Holland. And here we go, back to the book. I braced myself at the open door, the first man in the stick to jump, gripping the fuselage in, a, in case a sudden jerk flung me out too soon. Leaning forward, the wind whipped my face, pouring over the details of the placid Dutch landscape below. I could now see one or two cyclists dotting the otherwise deserted countryside. The flicker of the red warning light near my face told me that there was one minute to go. A railway line flashed below. The pattern of the woods was familiar as the view of the stable yard from the office window. The air photographs and the briefing model of the ground had imprinted the shapes on my mind. The pilots were dead on target. More often than not, in the old days, we had been dropped astray, but these Yanks always learned from their mistakes. I never saw the red light turn to green. Harrison's hand slapped my shoulder. I was out of the door. The slipstream hit me, flicking me sideways, and I fell away, just catching a glimpse of Harrison in the air above me and the tail of the aircraft flashing out of sight. Then I was floating, suspended gently in midair, my parachute canopy high. I looked up at the sky, choked with hundreds of swaying parachutes, most of them patterned in green and brown camouflage, but other, uh, others in a galaxy of colors, red and orange, purple, blue and yellow, vivid against the scattered white clouds. Every moment more aircraft arrived, arrived to disgorge their cargoes into the crowded air. Then I noticed the humming. We were being shot at from the ground. There were Bosch on the drop zone, 
Something was badly wrong. An opposed landing with the enemy firing as we hung from our parachutes parachutes or tried to collect our weapons before we could gather into a cohesive force on the ground was something new for us in the British Airborne Forces. So as they're coming down, they're getting shot at. He uses this term throughout the book. He calls the German Bosch. B-O-C-H-E. And where it comes from, from what I gathered, there's a French word that means, it could mean head, like caboche, or something like that. And it also can mean cabbage. Mm. And so I guess their, their, their slang term, their derogatory slang term was these big-headed German big cabbage heads. Mm. And he reduced that down to this term Bosch, and it's a common one for them to use. They used it a lot in World War One. And so this is this is a hangover from that, but you're gonna hear it throughout the book That's how he's referring to the Germans Back to the book a sharp pain burned the knuckles of my left hand blood was seeping from my fingers a bullet must have hit me grazed me anyway But now the heathland was rushing up Raising my hands to lift the webs I pulled and then hit the and then the ground hit me with an uncomfortable jar a bad landing I lay in the sunken road, listening to the bullets cracking overhead. And they're right, they're, they get right into the mix. I mean, it's immediately into the mix. Obviously, they're getting shot at in the way down, and then as soon as they hit the ground, it's on. Back to the book. A man with blood-stained blood shell dressing wrapped around his throat walked around the corner of the wood and towards us just as Pritchard, who's the medic, finished his work. Then came a couple of parties carrying stretchers, the occupant of one unconscious, the other with a cigarette between his gray, tight lips. They were the first stream of wounded men from a variety of units, making their painful way towards the dressing station which had been set up in the wood behind us. So far, C Company had been lucky. Only four men were missing, and a fifth had turned up late, smiling cheerfully despite a bullet through his bandaged arm. Another four or five were limping and hopping about on strained or twisted ankles, expressions of disgust in their faces, victims of the gusty wind on the dropping zone. All of them would have to be left behind. But then I thought again, calculating the figures once more. Perhaps we had not been so lucky after all. A tenth of the men who had implained that morning were already casualties. It had sounded as if all the fighting had happened on the far side of the dropping zone in the Arnhem direction. Now the noise of the battle began to ebb. The enemy posts had probably been overrun. Neither news nor orders had arrived from battalion headquarters. But I knew better than to obstruct the radio net with needless questions. So first of all, you're rolling into a situation where you, you're on your insert and you lose 10% of your men. That, that's, that's just where you're starting now. I, if I remember correctly, that is the standard kind of figure that when you're conducting a big airborne operation, like when the army conducts big airborne operations, that's what they figure they're gonna take for casualties on the drop zone. Obviously, they usually do better than that, but for worst case scenarios, that's kind of what they figure, and that's where they're at. The other thing that I thought was cool is here he is, he hasn't heard any word from the battalion HQ yet, but he's not gonna jump on the net and saying, hey boss, what do you want me to do? Mm. Hey, what's going on? Hey, where do you want me to be? Because there's other people that are trying to talk and he's gotta just kind of figure things out at this point. Now, 
He's talking about his own company, but here's the report on the on the rest of the battalion as he learned, as he figures this stuff. And you know, as usual, obviously, I'm not reading the whole book and I'm skipping through big chunks of combat situations. But at this point, he figures out what's going on with the battalion. Going back to the book, casualties in the battalion had not been light. Two officers and a hundred men had failed to arrive. Among them, the plane load which we had seen shot down. Another load had probably been dropped in the wrong place. Ian Hampshire was one of the missing officers. Rumor had it that he was dead. The other was the intelligence officer whose job Jimmy Gray had now combined with his own. Jimmy could not explain the reason for the delay. No one seemed to know. And that's one of the parts that I didn't go over in the beginning of the book as they're flying in as they're seeing flak hit and Explode around them. He's you know, they see another one of their aircraft filled with their brothers go down No shoots Now they start getting some coherent Input from the battalion and, and here's what they figured out going back to the book We would move as had already been planned in England the leading company of the battalion with Leslie Doyle's platoon, number nine in the front, some 200 yards ahead, followed by company headquarters, then Luke Tyler's eight platoon, then Douglas Thompson's seven platoon at the back. As I had expected, the company was ready to move by the time orders had been given out. Two minutes were all that was needed for the men to slide their entrenching tools into place, pick up their weapons, and sort themselves out. No one had removed his equipment. It was a lesson which the colonel had drummed into us. No man must ever remove his equipment when the enemy is anywhere near, no matter whether he was digging, sleeping, or defecating. Whatever time it may be, day or night, a soldier had only to reach for his weapon to be ready to fight or to march. Just once this day, just once each day, one man in three at a time was allowed to strip so that he could wash and shave. And shave they must. The last man of nine platoon was disappearing around the corner of the sandy track which ran parallel with the railway line to Ardenham when I noticed the colonel standing on the right next to the shell of a still smoking glider which partly blocked the battalion's path. So there was paratroopers that came in, but other people came in on gliders, just big gliders. You know, no engine that would get towed by other planes. They're filled with men and they would just land these gliders in, in big open fields. Gray was by the colonel's side, and behind them crouched a knot of radio operators and orderlies. It was the same as ever. The colonel's eyes were still, but he never missed anything. The unfastened pouch from which a grenade or Bren magazine could slip. The slack chin strap which would fail to hold a running man's steel helmet in place. Quietly, the colonel would indicate the error to whichever passing officer or NCO was responsible for the man. Nothing was ever ignored. Safely out of range, the offender would mumble about the nitpicking, old bastard. But the abuse was usually perfunctory and good-natured. All of them knew his ways, and by now, they had learned that his fads mattered. So, the colonel's running a tight ship. Mm. That's what he's doing. He's a highly disciplined guy, and he keeps his keeps his troops in check. And as you can see, they're not offended by that. Mm. Like they 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 complain about it a little bit, 
but they also they also know they it's know. the right thing to yeah. do. Here we go back to the book. Although we were moving along our planned route, our role in the battle had been changed. Instead of making for the high ground north of Arnhem, the whole of the brigade was now marching for the br- for the bridge to relieve the struggling remnants of the first brigade, which had been fighting alone there for more than twenty four hours. One thing was certain. So, so their their mission had changed a little bit. There's a bridge, and first brigade was at this bridge, had taken the bridge, but now they're getting attacked at that bridge by the Germans, and they're f- and now these guys get this brigade gets the orders to go and help them, go and relieve them. Back to the book. One thing was certain: parachute infantry were not the fast-moving, hard-hitting troops depicted by the daily press. With no more transport in a battalion than four lightly armored carriers and some half dozen jeeps, nearly everything needed in battle either had to be carried on the backs of soldiers or dragged behind them. There were no trucks just behind the forward companies loaded with spare ammunition. Instead, extra bandoliers were strung around necks and light anti-tank mines swung from waist belts. Success came with surprise in this sort of fighting. The enemy must be caught unaware and crushed before they could recover. Inevitably, we would run short of ammunition if the Boche were allowed the chance of standing and fighting. This weary trudge toward the bridge in Arnhem along the endless tracks was a crazy way to use airborne troops. Surprise had been lost long ago. Before the operation started, I doubted the wisdom of dropping so far from the bridges. Now it was clear that it had been a mistake. So they're they're in a radically different situation. Instead of dropping in and holding some ground, now they're moving. They have to carry all their gear with them. It's it's not a good situation. He's talking about some of the guys are carrying it as much as a hundred pounds, which is a ton of weight. Mm-hmm. And now they get they get word from the colonel back to the book he was able to confirm that the first parachute brigade was still holding out at the bridge where the casualties had been heavy on both sides the Germans having already lost 2,000 men although it was not clear who had counted them now as he gets done with that he kind of gives some word that they're gonna start moving uh, down this track so he's giving that order to this one of his officers Doyle and Doyle's normally you know pretty pretty fired up about what he's doing he's a motivated guy and here we go back to the book Doyle was not at all his ebullient self the task of nine platoon was simple he and his men had to walk straight down the track until they ran into the Bosch position their first warning of the enemy presence would be the rifle and machine gun fire tearing into them Still less were the two scouts to be envied who would be moving out in front of the rest of the platoon. It was almost inevitable that the first German rounds would hit one or both of them unless the Germans were cunning enough to let them pass so as to kill more of the men behind. But without armor in front to draw the enemy fire and pinpoint their positions, there was no other way to advance. I had chosen Doyle to lead the advance because I was certain that I could rely on him. This was the penalty for being good at one's job. So there you go. 
they're actually walking down train tracks mm. and they know a hundred percent they know a hundred percent that Germans are waiting for them and they're gonna push down these tracks and the way they're gonna find the Germans is when the Germans start shooting at them so they proceed down the tracks and now going back to the book the expected happen happened the calm of the night collapsed in an explosion of light and noise from a wide arc in front of nine platoon streams of white red and yellow tracer bullets converged on the stretch of track where the men must have flung themselves to the ground very lights and parachute flares larger and brighter than anything carried by us swung down towards the earth lighting the dark countryside to the shade of of a gray November morning a house burst into flames on the other side of the railway it was too sudden for an accident the conflagration must have been planned anything which moved was now visible overall was the noise the din of shells and mortars bursting both behind and ahead merging with the harsh roar of the enemy Spandau light machine guns and the more sustained drumming of the heavier weapons now I could hear another sound it was a slow rat-a-tat-tat of nine platoons Bren guns and the crack of British rifles replying to the German fire there were a lot of enemy in front of us the Germans had men everywhere So this is like a well-planned ambush scenario. And if you think about it, they had it sounds like they rigged this house mm-hmm. to light up and and be on fire and now that's backlighting and silhouetting all the friendly troops because mm-hmm. it just makes you stand out because there's a fire behind you. Mm-hmm. On top of that machine gun fire on top of that mortars shells are hitting you. And here we go back to the book as 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 the major here, as the company commander, Jeffrey Powell, is is crouched down waiting as all this is happening out ahead of him. He's not with that first platoon. He's behind them a little bit. And here we go back to the book. I saw a single crouched figure running up the track behind t- towards me. Then I recognize the broad bulk of Barf- Bartholomew, Leslie Doyle's platoon sergeant. This was quick. Leslie had wasted no time in sending back news. Only a little out of breath, Sergeant Bartholomew sank down by my side and began to speak, his voice as calm and sensible as usual. His leading section had come under fire at a range of only some 20 or 30 yards. It appeared that the Germans had allowed the two scouts to pass unmolested, but everyone else in the front section had been killed. There were several other casualties in the platoon as well, including Mr. Doyle, who had been hit badly in the thigh and was only semi-conscious. The survivors were pinned to the ground by fire, which was coming from either side of the track. This was all wrong. With his platoon commander hit, Sergeant Bartholomew, his place was with the platoon. There were plenty of other people to carry messages. Not only that, but Bartholomew could hardly have had time to verify the disastrous information about the leading section. It was far like far from likely that every man in it had been killed. So Bartholomew's nerve had broken in the first test. So that's the situation. This guy ran. Mm. And he comes back and reports in and says, you know, hey, everyone's dead. 
and he's he realizes he realizes the company commander realizes that not true going back to the book perhaps the responsibility had been too much for him whatever it was he was certainly scared despite his success in concealing the fact the sergeant had run away leaving the platoon to its own devices I was flabbergasted of all the NCOs I had judged this cool reserved man to be the most dependable a hard taskmaster too ruthless to be popular sergeant Bartholomew had been an effective foil to the easygoing and friendly Doyle and the two men had formed a fine team it was incredible that this should have happened in the light of a flare I studied the sergeant's face there was nothing to be seen Bartholomew returned my glaze with steady eyes there could be no point in my further destroying the man's self self-respect it was possible that he might recover after this first shock his pride taking charge to control his fear so my rebuke was restrained no more than a comment that Bartholomew should have sent private Jones back with the news and not come himself then I stood up once again told Robert who had appeared by my side to take charge and started down the track toward the forward platoon motioning Bartholomew to accompany me there was no need to say anything to Harrison who automatically rose to his feet his sten cradled in his elbow ready to shoot so interesting leadership dynamic there instead of saying Yo, you coward you quit he doesn't do that instead he he really tones it back and says you should have set Jones instead he's hoping that this guy will recover and this is a great line his pride taking charge to control his fear meaning this guy just has no pride at this point mm. he's trying to keep it together but hopefully the cap the the company commander is thinking that okay this guy will get it back together hopefully and we'll be able to utilize him as opposed to me just dropping the hammer on him right now mm -hmm. in which case he might just completely break and be worthless and the other thing and I, I I tried to include as much as I could of this guy Harrison that gets mentioned who's sort of the 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 company commanders right-hand guy but he's just always there always ready always stepping up and making things happen mm. now eventually as all that unfolds we're going back to the book Nesbit which is one of the guys in that in that platoon Nesbit had decided that it was time to leave and had used the lull to bring back the survivors of the platoon two men were dead while nothing was known of the fate of the two scouts with Nesbit were five wounded men two of whom including his officer were being carried Leslie in shocking pain from a shattered thigh which Morphia had done little to help had fainted after a few yards and was still unconscious a third of the platoon were casualties it was bad but not as quite as bad as pictured by Bartholomew I could not blame Nesbitt for withdrawing without permission short of ammunition with her officer wounded and the platoon sergeant unaccountably missing the men had heard nothing of the troops behind them for the past hour and had concluded that the battalion must have pulled back Nesbitt had seen a lot of war as his DCM one in Crete testified he understood its muddle he knew it was rare for a battle to go as planned 
his responsibility was to his men to rescue them from what seemed to be a mess this he had done and his judgment had been correct they were in no place to be caught at daylight overlooked on a forward slope and unencumbered with wounded men so you see decentralized command in action right there mm-hmm. Nesbitt doesn't hear doesn't know what's going on he makes a decision I'm getting these guys out of here mm-hmm. and what's good is the company commander supports it hey he made a good call that was the right thing to do mm-hmm. now <clears throat> at this point they're moving back they're moving back after they've confirmed you know they pushed forward trying to find out where the Germans were and now they're moving back because they realize that the Germans are absolutely holding strong so they've done this push forward they've got basically ambushed and now they pulled back after you know like I said confirming where the Germans were back to the book to accomplish this meaning to accomplish finding out where the Germans were. To accomplish this had cost us Leslie Doyle and the absent Bartholomew, while two men in Doyle's leading section were dead and the two scouts were missing, probably either killed or made prisoner. Seven other men had been wounded, including another sergeant. This was a total of 13 casualties, with another nine men lost when we landed. With nothing at all accomplished, over 20 men had already been killed or injured, and now the battalion was moving in the wrong direction back the way we had come. And you're going you're gonna to find, I mean, this is what, what makes this story so, de- so devastating is that, it, you know, I talk about Murphy's Law and things go wrong. The, these guys are complete. It's, it's just Murphy's Law over and over again. And... In most of the books that we read on here, there's triumph and there's victory at the end. And, and you can see right now already where this is heading. We got 20 guys wounded or killed, and instead of moving forward, we're actually moving backward. Mm-hmm. Back to the book, sooner than expected, we reached the battalion base. It had been sighted in a rectangular patch of wood about 20 acres inside, lying just north of the railway. It was 2.30 a.m., a horrible hour, especially so if one is tired, cold, and hungry. Thank God it would be starting to get light in a couple of hours. What would happen tomorrow? Something had gone very wrong indeed. By now we should be dug in on the high ground north of Arnhem, waiting for the Germans to counterattack the bridges instead. We were sitting here in the woods, only a few miles from where we had dropped, with strong enemy forces between ourselves and the city, where the men of 1st Brigade must be fighting for their lives. Wherever one turned, there seemed to be German troops, and good ones at that. The men who had stopped us had not behaved like rear area troops scraped together to put up some sort of resistance, but had fought with skill and tenacity. The slit trenches were dug, and everyone except for the double sentries in each section and the officers and NCOs on duty was sound asleep. The men humped like dogs, some curled up with a companion for warmth, lying in their full equipment, their weapons tied to their wrists by the slings. I should be asleep, too. Not sitting and worrying, feeling sorry for myself, but trying to get some rest in preparation for the coming day. Stand two would be at 0430 hours, half an hour before first light, when everyone would be awake 
and ready in his slit, weapon poised for a possible dawn attack. So they're dug in, and of course, it's not looking good at this point. They're going to stand to at 0430, which is pretty common. You're going to be up before the sunrise, and you want to be up before the enemy as well. Mm-hmm. Now they get together and get some word. Here we go back to the book. It did not take long. It did not take the colonel long to give us our orders. The brigade was to renew its effort to reach the bridge and bring relief to the men still fighting there. So pretty simple, straightforward goal. And in order to achieve this goal, they set up to do an attack on this little section of woods where they think there's a bunch of Germans, and here we go, back to the book. The leading sections plunged into the wood and disappeared. There were no enemy there at all. The information from brigade must have been wrong. We had attacked and taken an empty position. Never was there such an anticlimax, but never was an anticlimax more welcome. Now we get a little visit up on the front lines. Here we go, back to the book. As the small spare figure stepped out of the first vehicle, I realized that it was the first time I had seen the brigadier commander since we left England. He was just the same as ever, relaxed and smiling. Battle was nothing new to him. He had been through the worst of the desert war. Muddle in no way disconcerted him, at least not outwardly. It's interesting he uses the term muddle. Mm. He's talking about the fog of war, this muddle when you don't really know what's happening. He talks about how the veterans are used to it and and accustomed to it and they can deal with it. Mm. Muddle in no way disconcerted him, at least not outwardly. He seemed to anticipate it, understanding how judgment and behavior was impaired by danger. Wherever he went, he inspired confidence with his gentle eyes and friendly manner. For a regular cavalry officer, his background was unusual. He had come to his regiment not from Sandhurst, but from Oxford, with a double first and fluency in a half a dozen languages. And I love this line right here. He wore his learning lightly as he did his decorations. Meaning this guy is highly educated and highly decorated, but you don't even know it. It was rare for soldiers to be aware of officers more senior than the colonels who commanded their battalions. But every man in the brigade could recognize and name the brigadier. The two visitors did not stay long, but their appearance was a tonic for all. It was a reminder that that there were able men in charge, even though the battle was developing in a rather odd manner. Now as they, as he continues in these situation, back to the book, suddenly my my preoccupation with the problems of others ceased. There was a familiar whine overhead, and I found myself propelled into the half-dug trench, all but on top of Galbraith and Robert. The action had been a reflex. I knew that I had made no conscious decision to jump. As I lay there with my second in commands and trenching tool, carving into a ridge in my left buttock, the mortar bomb burst about eight feet to the right. The scream of the shards of jagged metal passing just overhead flailed my ears as earth and stones spattered down on top of us. The stench of high explosive filled filled the trench. 
My face, I found, was pressed into the coarse material of Corporal Galbraith's battle trousers. Gingerly raising my head, I peered over the low parapet. At the foot of, the tr- of a tree some 15 yards away lay a motionless heap, a green and khaki bundle which did not stir. Jumping out of the trench, I ran across and turned over the limp body. The head fell back to show the open, staring eyes of Sergeant Hawks, one of the seven platoon section commanders, a bright young NCO, only just promoted, who had been with the battalion since the day it was raised. He was another old friend. At first I could see no sign of injury, but then I noticed the small hole in the back of Hawks' helmet and the thin stream of blood streaking the back of his neck. Lying by hug and side, I seemed to count seven explosions, all just a little further away than the first, but still close enough to smell the hot gases. There was a short pause, and then, as if it were not afterthought, an eighth bomb struck the branches of the tree just above us, directing its hot metal splinters down to the trenches below. A half-strangled cry of distress brought my head up, just in time to see Corporal Pritchard clamber out of his slit and race across the towards the cry, his haversack of medical supplies marked with its red cross dangling from his hand. The pause lasted no more than a half a minute. Again the whine. Again I ducked. This was the covering fire for a counterattack. Or the, was this the covering fire for a counterattack, or were the Boches merely harassing us spitefully? But when I raised my head from Higgins, from Huggins' boots to look around, I was relieved to see one of the seven platoon Bren gunners, his helmet and eyes just above the level of the parapet, gazing down the track towards his front. So the sentries were still doing their job. The fire was not forcing their heads down. If, there, if this was the covering fire for an attack, we would not be caught unawares. So that's the standard procedure right here for the Germans, and really for anyone, it's cover and move, mm-hmm. right? We put in big bombs, we put in mortars, we put our, in artillery, and while you're hiding and while you're ducking down so you don't get killed, they maneuver in. Mm-hmm. And then right, at, right when they get so close that they're in danger of their own artillery, the artillery stops and then they proceed with the assault. Mm. Here we go, the lull, now there's a lull, the lull provided a chance to finish digging. There was no longer any need to persuade the men to dig faster, the lesson had really been driven home. We'd been digging for no more than a few minutes when the sound of firing to the north slackened. But the noise from the vehicles in front had increased, the thud of guns only a few hundred yards away was punctuated by the hammering of Bren's. By the way, Brens, I don't think I've said this, Brens are sort of the uh, a weapon, a British machine gun, mm. versus the, the Spandau, which is, which is the German machine guns. And we, they use, the, the Brits and the Americans use the term Spandau to talk about basically heavy machine, heavier machine guns, mm. but, but that's what they're talking about when they're talking about Spandau. And then a Bren is the Brit machine gun. Mm. Both forward platoons were in action and I had placed company headquarters too far back to be able to see what was happening. The walkie-talkies were silent. Also, I worried about the sitting of the platoon some 300 yards apart, each isolated in its own corner of the woods and unable to support the others against a determined attack. This is so important for tactical leaders out there. Think about these lessons, and these are lessons that I talk about all the time, 
And these are lessons that I used to have to teach all the time. So you've got your platoons. They're out there doing something. Mm-hmm. You need to be close enough that you have communications with them so that you actually understand what's happening. And this is the same in the business world. If mm-hmm. you put yourself in a position where you can't, where you don't understand what's happening in the field, then you're not going to be able to help. You're not going to be able to support. You're not going to be able to, to understand what's happening so you can make decisions. Mm-hmm. So in this point, he's positioned himself too far away. On top of that, he's positioned his platoons too far apart from each other. So if you're too far apart from each other, you can't cover for each other. If you can't cover, you can't move. And if you can't move, you can't win. So those are critical points. Make sure your command position is close enough, not so close, that you're getting in the firefight. No, not so close that you're pinned down, but close enough so that you understand what is happening. And then if you have multiple elements in the field, you get them close enough to each other that they can support each other. Mm. Always. He sees a guy running back, and here we go, back to the book. It was Sergeant Pryor, one of Nesbitt's section commanders, a rather sulky man, able and well-educated, but with a grudge against authority. In his left hand, Pryor grasped his sten in a grip so firm that the knuckles showed blue under under the sunburn. His right arm, from which clothing had been cut away at the shoulder, was thrust into the front of his smock, the elbow covered by a blood-stained dressing. His face was white with shock and taut with pain. A morphia injection was doing little to alleviate the agony of an elbow smashed by a bullet. The news Pryor brought was serious. The vehicles which we could hear were Bosch armor driving backwards and forward along the road and sweeping the front of nine platoons position secure from retaliation. So far the armor had only claimed prior, but Sergeant Avondale had been killed by a mortar fragment as he dashed across between a couple of trees to put some question to Nesbitt. This inexorable loss of skilled leaders was serious. In our parachute battalions, unlike usual infantry units, section leaders ranked as sergeants, not corporals. Nine platoon had now lost not only its officer, but three of its four sergeants as well. Hawks was dead, and one of seven platoon section commanders had failed to appear at the rendezvous after the drop. Already, nearly half the sergeants had become casualties. This is just a nightmare unfolding. Mm -hmm. Back to the book. After we'd put the final touches on our slit trenches, time was found to scrape a shallow grave for Sergeant Hawks. It was hard to suppress one's revulsion at touching the body of someone I had known so well, but just as I was steeling myself to do so, Huggins stepped forward ripped open the dead man's smock and shirt and slipped one of the two identity discs over the blood-stained head. The sergeant major then unbuckled his watch and searched the pockets for anything which might be useful, a morpheus syringe and a field dressing, a bar of chocolate and a couple of Mills grenades, two packets of cigarettes and a box of matches, a couple of maps and a pocket knife. There was nothing personal except for a grubby envelope containing a half a dozen faded and dog-eared snapshots of a stout, smiling girl holding a baby. 
before buttoning the envelope into his breast pocket, Huggins slipped the identity disc between the photographs. I was helping Corporal Pritchard shovel the earth back over Hawk's body, listening with one ear to Huggins sharing the dead man's ammunition and other possessions among the members of the company headquarters, when suddenly I became aware of Jimmy Gray standing beside me, apparently anxious to speak, but diffident at interrupting. Telling Pritchard to finish the job, I rose from my knees, glad to be able to put my mind to something else. When I turned to speak to Gray, I was disturbed by what I saw. The dirt of battle had exaggerated his usual scruffiness. His smock and trousers were coated with mud and dust, and his right sleeve was stained from top to bottom with blood. Not his own, as he explained when he saw my eyes fixed on it. The front of his smock and the battle dress underneath had been torn by a large fragment of a mortar bomb which in some miraculous fashion had failed to even scratch him. Three inches to one side, and it, would have been se- and it would have severed his head. But it was the eyes above the pallid, unshaven cheeks which were frightening. They were empty of life. When he spoke, the words were lucid and well-chosen as ever, but the voice lacked expression. The phrases were cold. It was not as if he were describing events which he had himself witnessed, but something unreal, something half-imagined. B Company had attacked at 0800 hours. At the start, their advance through the woods had gone like the first attack of the morning, a calm and steady progress against a seemingly non-existent enemy. Then, some hundred yards short of the objective, a swath of fire had cut down the men of the two leading platoons. The half-grown trees and the sparse undergrowth had neither, neither hidden them nor shielded them from the interlocking arcs of the enemy weapons which covered every inch of ground. It was just possible that they might have been able to deal with the machine guns alone, but the armor was too much for them, pumping shells into the men at near point-blank range. Gray had seen it all happen. The colonel had tried to stop the attack as soon as the full strength of the enemy position had become clear, but by then, more than half the men of the two leading platoons had been killed or wounded. Both subalterns were dead. The other officers and the CSM had all been wounded. The colonel had tried to turn the German flank by sending A Company around to the left, but there was no flank. The second attack had been a replica of the first. It too had collapsed, but not before some 40 more men were dead or maimed, including two of the four surviving officers. Harry Bates had been terribly wounded in the stomach and by now was probably dead. As Gray had pulled him behind some cover, his blood had soaked his sleeve. This was not the complete story there was further bad news. Not only had our own attack been shattered, but the other battalion to our north had hit similar enemy positions and was making little progress in its efforts to get into Arnhem along the main road. From somewhere or other, the Boche had found enough troops of quality good enough to smash the brigade's attempt to reach the city. 
So we just have a, a horrible situation unfolding. Back to the book. From far away in the distance came the drum of powerful airplane engines. Nesbitt was the first to spot the minute shapes, first circling and then diving out of the sun towards us, the noise changing to a shriek as the machine swept down towards the wood, towards the woods. From a half a dozen different directions, a happy shout of spitfires rose from the trenches. At last, some help had arrived from the outside world. The RAF had arrived to give us close air support. And that's, you know, we've had close air support save the day many times in, in, in books that we've talked about on this podcast. Mm. As I gaved up at the dozen spits screaming down to strafe the Bosch positions on the sloping ridgehead, Nesbitt's voice suddenly roared in my ear, shouting to everyone to get their heads down and hide their faces. As I ducked with the rest, I spotted the black crosses on the wings. The aircraft were not ours, but German Messerschmitts. Our air superiority was so overwhelming that it had never occurred to anyone that the machines might be hostile. They were not diving onto the enemy positions, but onto our own. I gazed skywards. The Messerschmitt was so close that I could see the pilot's face. Two rockets detached themselves from the wings and swooped down to explode seconds later in the woods where the survivors of A and B companies were settling into their new positions. As I ducked once more, there was another scream of engines from behind, followed by the sound of a storm of bullets striking branches on the trees on the other side. Two aircraft which had discharged their rockets were now carrying out a second run, strafing with their machine guns. As I squeezed even closer to the earth at the bottom of the shallow trench, the reverberations of an explosion some 50 yards away pounded my eardrums. It was another rocket. Suddenly, it ended. The aircraft had vanished as quickly as they had arrived. Wow. Yeah, because at this point, the, the, the British and the Americans had almost total air domination. And so everyone just completely assumed that, oh, thank God, here comes some Spitfires to come and save us. Mm -hmm. and, and they were wrong. Now, the, the air, we did have air domination for the most part. And one of the things that they needed, as you, as you heard, these airborne troops, they can only carry so much. And so they're, they're going to need resupplies. They need more ammunition. Mm -hmm. They need medical gear. They need food. They need water. They need stuff to be dropped to them. Mm -hmm. And so there was a plan in place for them to have gear and food and equipment and ammunition dropped to them mm -hmm. at these locations where they were supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Because remember, they were supposed to be making progress this whole time. They're not making progress, but they're supposed to be making progress. Yeah. And since communication is so bad, they can't call back and say, hey, we're not where we're supposed to be. We're over here. Drop mm -hmm. the gear on us. Mm -hmm. But the gear gets dropped in the pre-planned positions, which, of course, are enemy positions. Mm -hmm. But here's what it sounds like for them, or here's what they're thinking on the ground. Then to the south of us, I saw the familiar shape of a line of Dakotas approaching at about a thousand feet. In a minute, the sky was crammed with them. It was the first supply drop about which we had been told at the briefings. 
but the drop zone was a couple miles away, over the other side of the hill, right in the middle of enemy positions. By now, of course, the division should have captured the area, but the Boche still held it. News of the progress of the battle could not have reached the RAF, or the pilots would have diverted to drop their supplies elsewhere. Now, they can see this happening. And the people that are in the planes, they're called the RASC, the Royal Army Service Corps. They run basically the supply and the logistics and and help resupply and drop this equipment. Mm. So this is, he's as he's watching all these Dakotas, the Dakotas are these little transport planes. It's actually what they had parachuted out of. And mm. now they're watching them drop this resupply. Back to the book. Among the mass, a single Dakota just overhead caught my attention. It had already been hit, and flames were creeping down from the starboard engine toward the cockpit. As it lost height, the khaki-clad RASC dispatchers were standing at the open doorway, pushing out the panniers of supplies. Those are the bags of supplies. I could see their faces. The fire was on their side of the plane. The wing was burning before their eyes. The Dakota was now little more than 300 feet above the ground. If the men at the door jumped now, they might just save themselves. In a second or two more, the aircraft would be so low that their parachutes would not have time to open. This the men must have known. But they went on with their routine drill, pushing out the panniers regardless of what would happen to them. Then the starboard wing crumpled. The flaming plane disappeared beyond the trees, the panniers still falling from the open door. The sky was empty. The last plane had gone. But we still stood watching the place where the Dakota had vanished, mourning the futility of the self-sacrifice we had just witnessed. Can't even imagine that. Guys just continuing to do their job, knowing their fate. At their their senior officers at this point and their NCOs are are starting to get hit pretty regularly by, by snipers, mm. and so he decides he tells his his guys, "Hey, take your take your rank off your uniform because mm. I don't want the enemy to know." And he tells this to one of his one of his leaders named named Robert, and he says, "As I watched." Robert slip his captain stars off his shoulders and tuck them away in his pocket. I knew for certain that my second in command disapproved. Officers should show themselves as such. So one of his guys is thinking, no, we're officers. We need to we need to stand out. Mm. We need to stand up. Now, I mentioned the American forces the 82nd and the 101st and the British forces, there was also a Polish parachute brigade that was coming in on this attack as well. And 
they were scheduled to come in a little bit later as reinforcements and here we go back to the book only then did I remember that the glider borne part of the Polish parachute brigade was due to land that afternoon upon the stretch of enemy uh, upon the stretch of open country below us at the same time as the parachute battalions were dropped in the polderland south of Arnhem bridges the landing zone was already a battlefield and the wretched poles were about to land in the middle of it first the gliders hit the ground its massive weight tearing up chunks of stubble as it skidded to a halt lurching onto one wing as it did so men jumped out and rushed to the rear and to release the tail unit so that the vehicles inside could be driven out two more gliders were now plowing across the ground another exploded in the air in a vast ball of yellow flame just as it was upon the point of touching down Mortar bombs were bursting among the men struggling to release their loads while streams of chase tracer bisected the scene into oddly formal patterns Another glider was on fire on the ground as still more swooped in to land adding to the chaos The poles were now joining in the battle themselves some firing toward the Germans some towards the KOSB Which is a the King's own Scottish borders. It's a it's another British unit and some in the direction of our other battalion. It must be impossible for the Poles to distinguish enemy from friend. They probably thought they had landed in a circle of Bosch units, all intent upon their destruction. In a few minutes, it was all over. From the wrecked and flaming gliders, which now littered the ground, small parties of Poles were making their escape, firing at anything they saw move. Two or three vehicles had been driven away, but otherwise they had failed to drag their jeeps and guns from the gliders. The Polish anti-tank battery no longer existed as a fighting unit. It had landed in the middle of a battle and been destroyed before it could fire a single shot. Waste. It was waste once again. Waste like the supply drop. Nothing seemed to go right. A knot of some eight poles charged towards us, intent on seeking shelter either in the woods or behind the safety of a railway embankment. Some 30 yards away, one man slightly ahead of the others must have noticed our camouflage steel helmets in the slit trenches ahead and shouted a warning. In a bunch, they flung themselves into the undergrowth. Anticipating what would happen, I yelled to everyone to get their heads down just as a hail of bullets from the poles whistled over our heads, a few hitting the trench parapets but most striking the trees well above our heads as the excited men emptied their weapons in our direction. So long as we kept our heads down, we were safe from the Polish fire, but the worry was that some of them might creep closer and start to fling grenades around. However, in a couple of minutes, the firing slackened and then ceased. Possibly the Poles sensed that something might be wrong when no one retaliated. The comparative silence provided the opportunity to shout a warning across the narrow stretch of ground which separated us. There was no reply and I shouted once again in faltering English a voice inquired who we were firmly the company sergeant major Huggins told them the poles seemed to understand after a few seconds of audible consultation they rose to their feet and walked across so you've got a just a chaotic situation the poles land they're getting attacked from all directions and sure enough they're shooting at the friendly forces blue on blue happening once he gets them settled down he's got some people some of these polish folks that now have no leadership 
back to the book, calling Douglas over, I told him that he now had a fourth section in seven platoon. And within a few minutes, the Poles were digging hard under the tutelage of their corporal, the only comprehensible part of whose name sounded like Peter. The digging had hardly started when a jeep roared down the track in the direction, from the direction of the battalion headquarters. As it braked to stop in the cover of the trees, Jimmy Gray jumped out and ran towards us. Gray's news was startling. We were all to withdraw to Wolfhazen in 15 minutes' time. One could not just stand up and walk away from an enemy right on one's heels. In daylight, the only way to withdraw was to move by bounds with platoons and companies covering one another back. Any other plan was madness. Things over in the north must be bad indeed for the colonel to be rushed in this way. But Gray's instructions were unshakable. So they're digging in and they're getting an order. Get out of here. We're going to leave. And he's saying, okay, that's fine. But guess what? Even when you leave, you still use the fundamental principle of cover and move. And that's what he's wanting to do. So now they're on the retreat. And here we go back to the book. The pace was far too quick. Some men were all but running to keep up. As I had expected, little by little, cohesion was starting to break down. Some of the men of the mortar platoon had overtaken us despite the weight of the loads and were mixed in among us. There were two small groups from another unit in the middle of 7 platoon. From somewhere in the front, a long way off, a spandal sent its bullets flying harmlessly overhead, but men were looking apprehensive and flinching. We were now under fire from two different directions. At any minute, the Bosch would find the range and then the slaughter would begin. It was no longer an orderly retreat. The withdrawal was taking on the nature of a horde of men seeking safety. Soon discipline would crack and everyone would start to run. What a target we must be. Some 500 men from four or five different units rapidly coalescing into a solid moving mass. Yeah, this is just a nightmare. And, and you can imagine it's an individual thing and you're going to see some great leadership examples, but it's an individual thing because... If you can keep the teams working together, covering and moving for each other, mm-hmm. that's good. You're going to keep the enemy's heads down. But if, if people in the group start saying, you know what, I'm not going to cover, I'm going to run. Yeah. And now no one's covering. And now you've got a bunch of people that are moving and no cover, and that's when you're going to get slaughtered. Mm. Not only are you going to get slaughtered by, by people that are shooting at you, but if you're not putting down cover fire, the enemy maneuvers. Mm-hmm. They, they don't just sit there. I mean, some of them will be shooting, but they'll be shooting, but other elements of them are going to move, and they're going to be able to cut you off. They finally do make it back. They get, they get a little bit of luck here. Here we go back to the book. We caught our breath in the wood. So they, they get to a woods. David's men had disappeared, and there was no sign of the colonel or of the battalion headquarters. No one had followed us. We were the last across, but a quick check told me that only Robert Watson, the CSM, and three or four other men were missing in addition to 7 Platoon. Of the latter, there was nothing to be seen. In all, there were still about 50 men with me, not counting Peter and his seven poles still clinging tenaciously to us. Perhaps I should try to get back across the bullet-spattered embankment to find out what had happened to the others. But the noise of the battle was getting louder. The Bosch must be closing in. The vital thing must be to rejoin the rest of the battalion with the 50 men I still had and not to leave them in Luke Tyler's charge while I returned on what could be a foolhardy errand. But it was difficult to avoid the thought that perhaps I was reluctant reluctant to climb back over the top of that embankment. 
So he he does make it to this woods, but he doesn't have everybody with him. Mm. And he's questioning himself: Should I go back over there and risk it or not? Mm. And part of his part of his rationalizing, you know, I, the best thing to do is get back with the rest of the battalion. Yeah. But part of him is saying, "You're rationalizing this, yeah. and you're just you're just not you're you're being a coward." Mm. But he does he he proceeds on with the battalion. He knows he's going to get killed if he goes over that. He can hear the enemy coming. So. Back to the book, 10 minutes later, we found the remnants of the battalion. Half of A Company, the mortars, and what was left of the machine guns were still were missing, as well as our own 7th platoon. More than one-third of the men who had withdrawn from the woods had failed to cross the railway. We were now down to no more than a couple of hundred men. So we're going, we're... <laughs> down to a couple of hundred men from five or six hundred men in the battalion. Maybe even a little bit more. Maybe there might have been 700 men in the battalion. They get word once again. Here's what's going to happen. Tomorrow at first light, the brigade would move on to Oosterbeek to join the rest of the division. But unless ammunition together with air and artillery support was forthcoming, the prospects were far from good. We were, it seemed, not opposed by a few third-line troops. Elements of three SS panzer divisions had been identified in the battle. The Germans seemed to have moved quickly, or else something had gone wrong with the intelligence. It was not surprising that the day's fighting had been so very bitter. So they're pointing out that they weren't going against you know, third-rate troops. They were going out against SS panzer divisions, the best of the German soldiers. In talking with Sergeant Major Bauer and Sergeant Nesbitt before I reached Tyler's platoon, I had done my best to be as cheerful as possible, but it was plain that the two NCOs realized that I was making the best of things. With Luke Tyler, it was different. I could not insult him by trying to disguise our straits. I just told him the facts as I had received them from the colonel. Possibly it was a mistake. Quite suddenly, the failure of it all oppressed me. In less than 36 hours, two-thirds of the battalion had gone. Fifteen rifle company officers had landed. Only two were left. Ten for certain had either been killed or wounded. The chances of surviving another day were small. Fatigue and hunger had drained me. There was a need to unburden myself. Luke was junior in my rank, but equal in years, and in any case, it was easier to confide in someone who was in many ways a stranger. Even as I spoke, I was ashamed of this weakness. But there was no stopping. Quietly, Luke gave me the reassurance I needed. The iron needed to sustain oneself through such a day was easily expended, and I felt that I had purloined some of Luke's share. So he, he basically unloads to one of his guys or to, to another, uh, another officer below him in rank. But what I think is interesting about this is he needed someone to talk to. He he was holding it all inside and wasn't saying anything and trying to look positive. And even he's looking at his guys as he's telling them, don't worry, gents, we're going to be okay. And his guys are looking at him like, hey, no, we don't believe you. And so he has to, he feels the need to unload on someone. And that's why, you know, I, I just think from my perspective, you, you know, we always talk about relationships that you have on your team. 
and for sure in your platoon or in your team it's really good to have someone that you can just kind of unload on that you know is professional enough to bolster you up without getting dragged down into your negativity yeah. and and a lot of times i've found if if you have someone like that or maybe a couple people like that in your team that you can talk to well guess what sometimes they're going to be bolstering your attitude and sometimes you're going to be bolstering their attitude. Yeah. And and so you got to you got to find someone like that that's in your team that you can say, "Man, this is this is horrible. This is going wrong." And some that someone's going to go, "Hey, you know what? It's not that bad. We're going to yeah. get through it." And then two or three days later, he might be coming to you and saying, "Hey, this is a horrible situation. I can't believe this." And you're going to say, "No, man, we're going to be all right." Yeah. So I, I think it's important and that's again, we're building relationships, but that's one of the reasons we build relationships. They get into a hold-up position back to the book on stand two rounds I found the Polish trenches empty except for Peter their corporal crouched grimly behind his Bren The rest of the party had vanished in the early hours sensing perhaps that they had attached themselves to an unlucky unit Peter explained nothing, but his embarrassment was clear It was both unfair and pointless to press him for details when either pride or sense of duty had kept him there to fight among strangers the thought of what would have happened if the enemy had attacked from this direction against a position held by one solitary man was chilling. It was a mistake to trust strangers. I had learned yet another lesson. Rely on only those you knew. Again, it's interesting how he sometimes backs off. Instead of pressing, where are your guys? He, he knows, it's like, what, what, what point is that? Or when Bartholomew was was running away, he didn't press him super hard. And you're going to get to a point. There's a point in here when he does press people. But here he's deciding he's not going to do it. And the other interesting thing is here it says, I learned another lesson rely, you know, not to trust strangers, rely on only those you know. What you have to do in those situations is you have to put someone that you do trust, embed them with these units that you don't know. Mm. So if he would have taken, and he gave these, he gave that section to, one of his platoon commanders and said hey you got another section now but maybe embed one more guy or two more guys in there or split these guys up even more so instead of seven and one big bulk you put two or three there two or three there two or three there and now you've split them up a little bit and mm-hmm. you can have better control over them yeah it's weird there's you know there's opportunity to desert though and these guys took the opportunity sure. now <clears throat> the fighting rages on and obviously, I, I have to fast forward through some of it. And they eventually get into a little village, a little small village, and they've they've taken down, they've taken some buildings. And here we go. They're in these buildings. Back to the book. We were in a mess. The Bosch were on the other side of the valley, outnumbered and outgunned us. There was not the slightest hope of reaching the back of the breed line this way, and to stay here on this forward slope was impossible. At this rate, we would all be dead or wounded soon. Somehow I had to get the survivors back up the hill, but it was near but it was a near insuperable problem with the men scattered down among the houses, lawns, and shrubberies shot at every time they moved. Someone called from the side of the house. As I turned and looked, Private Gregory darted across to throw himself down beside me. Under the dirt and two days scrub of beard, his face was grayish white. 
he seemed about to vomit. As Gregory stammered out his platoon commander's name, I knew what had happened. Lieutenant Tyler was dead. It must have happened just after we parted. Luke had been killed on the steep garden path which led from the house down the road. He had been hit by a sniper, killed outright by a bullet through the heart within a couple yards of the place where Gregory was lying. Possibly, Luke had been careless because he was still dazed, but he had to get back to his platoon, and the path was his only route. So they had been together, and they'd been hit by some kind of artillery in the house, and it rattled them. And then Luke had gone out to get back back to his platoon, and when he left, he got shot by a sniper. Mm. Back to the book. This was how officers and NCOs were killed, just doing their routine job. This was why casualties among the leaders were so high. All the time that they were moving about, checking here, encouraging there, backwards and forwards. Now, besides myself and only the quartermaster sergeant, Bauer and Sergeant Weiner were left. All the rest of the officers and sergeants in the company had gone. One problem, however, had been solved. The remnants of Tyler's two forward sections had managed to extricate themselves without waiting for orders. Since last night, Private Gregory had been in charge of one of the other sections, both the NCOs having been hit the day before. During that last mortar stonk, a bomb had fallen right on top of the corporal who was commanding the other section, blowing him and his Bren gunner half to pieces. Common sense had told the survivors to quit, and there had been no one to stop them except Gregory, who for the moment was shaken by the sight of what had happened to his friends, and who in any case lacked the authority to hold them there. No one else had been hit in the scramble back, and the survivors were now sheltering in the house. So they're in these houses, and and for the first time, you're going to hear the company commander start to r- realize he's got people at their breaking point. Back to the book. The others were as uneasy as I was. For the first time, I was unhappy about them. Until now, they had endured the successive disasters, but the events of the morning had tried them too far. It had been yesterday once again, yet another failure, failure against an enemy who is far too strong for us. Men were looking jittery. Some could be well near their breaking point. As I gazed down the slope trying to spot some activity among the Bosch, a movement to the right caught my eye. About 20 yards away, two of Kelly's men were moving diagonally behind me, sheltered on the far side of the ridge. These are... These are deserters. My shout made them hesitate and then stop after two or three more steps. Forgetting the enemy, I stood up and strode down towards them. No explanation was necessary. The surly guilt on their faces was enough. Deliberately choosing words for effect, I cursed them in language rarely used by officers towards their soldiers. It was enough. The two men turned back towards their platoon. So, like I said, sometimes he, well, there, there he's dropping the hammer. These two guys are trying to desert, and he goes on and, and drops the hammer on them and gets them back with their platoon. Back to the book. In this mood, the men would never stand up to an enemy attack. Even a mortar stonk could break them. I could see it happening. 
first one or two men would slip away like the two I had just stopped, and then a rush would follow. Something drastic had to be done. No more than the occasional rifle bullet was now coming over. In fact, no one had been hit since we took our positions along this ridge. It seemed safe enough. Standing up, I began to walk along the path towards the left of our position. For the first few steps, I felt wretchedly vulnerable, but then an odd exhalation seized me. For the first few steps, I felt wretchedly vulnerable, but then an odd exhilaration seized me. Not too slowly and not too quickly, I strode deliberately toward the first group of men. Grinning down at Lance Corporal Williams, I made some inept remark about it being the wrong place for a company clerk. If I were to be hit, it would happen anyway. Now seemed to be as good a time as ever. Stopping at each group of men, I checked their firing positions and made necessary changes. Then I was at the end of Kelly's line and I started back, conscious that everyone was watching. There was a burst of machine gun fire, well wide of us, but I managed to avoid flinching at it. Suddenly, Sergeant Weiner's voice, harsh with concern, was yelling at me to get down, demanding angrily what I was playing at. The spell broke. I was grateful for the excuse to lower myself down beside him, very relieved that it was over. The rage in Weiner's face dissolved into an unaccustomed grin. The corny dramatics were over, but they had served their purpose. The men had got a grip on themselves. So he basically stood up and walked around and talked to everyone and made himself visible and made himself appear to not be scared to get the guy's heads back in the game until his sergeant Weiner yells at him and says, hey, dude, get down. When these guys desert, like the deserters, where do they go? So they can head back towards towards the areas that have been secured. So as this beachhead, you know, we landed D-Day, June 6th. This is now in September. So, you know, coalition forces or, or, sorry, allied forces had pushed into France. So if you could walk back, you could eventually get to friendly lines. Yeah. And that's that's what their plan was. And then what? That when you get there, don't they know? Hey, you deserted. Your well, you'd thing? say, oh, I, you know, you'd say, oh, I was, I got separated from my troops oh, when I parachuted in. I couldn't find my people or whatever. You make yeah. up your lie and you, you deal know, with it later. You deal with okay. it later. Because right now you're thinking, I'm not going to make it. Yeah, much I just longer. don't want that beef. That's crazy. It was clear why nothing. We had heard nothing from battalion headquarters for the past two hours. Like everyone else, the the signalers, orderlies, and clerks had been fighting for their own survival. The Germans were all around them and had been pressing them hard throughout the morning. So they're not getting any information about what's happening. This is... This is interesting. He goes back to get they 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 end up with a little extra ammunition and he goes back to get some ammunition from the battalion. They have got it like staged in the battalion headquarters and, and as he's doing this, he he the the ammunition was in a Jeep. And so he goes to the Jeep, he finds the Jeep, and he's with one of his other guys, and they the regimental sergeant major is sitting basically on top of the Jeep on top of the ammunition. And he kind of is looking at the guy, you know, saying, hey, I'm here, I'm an officer, I got a platoons out there and a company out there, I gotta get them ammunition, and, and he doesn't really move, he just mm. kind of s- sits there. Mm. And so, finally, 
uh, here he was. But the, here the re- regimental sergeant major was in the middle of battle sitting on his arse and taking his ease while a company commander hunted for ammunition. Majors are not in the habit of rebuking regimental sergeant majors, but this was too much. The tensions of the morning had snapped my self-restraint, and in a couple of succinct sentences, I told the RS, the regimental sergeant major what I thought of him. Then the, re- the regimental sergeant major apologized, but he did not move. Without any trace of irony or annoyance in his voice, he quietly explained that he could not stand up because he had been shot through both legs. I had not noticed the airborne smock with which someone had covered his outstretched and bandaged legs. Think before you act. Hmm. Now they're on their way. They're heading finally to this area of Oosterbeek. They're on their patrol, and here we go. Back to the book, a Spandau opening up ahead sent us all to the ground, men diving for cover just a little too quickly. A moment later, a second gun fired on us from the right, but it was the it was the ominous rattle of the tracked vehicles which chilled. The first one, then another, then two more, quite close and in front, their engine clatter rising above the din of the machine gun and rifles. Then, some 70 yards away, I saw the first of the SP guns its stubby weapon traversing slowly towards us. SP guns are, they're, they're kind of like tanks, it's, it's self-propelled guns. They're like mm-hmm. artillery pieces with tracks on them. Mm-hmm. The flash from its, stout, uh, from its snout was one of, with the explosion of the bursting shell. Just to the right, a half-grown tree shattered into jagged splinters. A second shot falling hard on the first one covered Harrison and me with earth. We were swamped by the noise. Every sort of weapon seemed to be firing. Grenades were exploding, but the distinct above the rest was the clank and the throaty cough of the armored guns. Caught like this in the open, we were helpless. Tanks plowing among, about among us could have been no worse. There was no way of fighting back. No one to seem to have even a piot, which is like their bazooka, anti-armor weapon. And we could not get close enough to use the gammon bombs, the bags of plastic explosive carried for, the, for use against armor. So that's another little, it's like a big bag of explosives that you can put on an on a armored vehicle to destroy it. They call them gammon bombs. Mm. The men in front were moving again. I stood up and signaled those behind to follow. We were doubling now, but there was still some sort of control. We were not running away, but making for somewhere. Where? I did not know. Then, about a hundred yards away, I caught a glimpse through the trees of a German half-track. It stopped, and helmeted shapes jumped from its sides. How many more of them were there? This could be the start of another attack, which could only end it all. Our will to fight back was all but broken. Then I heard the, brig- the brigadier telling me to clear the enemy out of the hollow, after which the survivors of the brigade would join us there. C Company, it seemed, was the last organized body of troops. So they're looking at this area, this open area where there's some enemy, but it looks like it's a good position. Mm. Of course, their will to fight is just about broken, and you hear the brigadier is saying, hey, Take your company and clear out that hollow. Go. Mm. 
back to the book. For a moment, I was so dumbfounded that I hardly heard the brigadier going on to say that the brigade major was dead as well, killed about five minutes ago. Another friend was gone, but I hardly listened. What was the brigadier ordering us to do in his quiet and determined fashion? It was absurd. The men were finished. Only a few minutes ago, I had realized that they were past defending themselves. Now we were being told to assault that Bosch position. The brigadier's look was both quizzical and encouraging. The confounded man could see what was passing through my mind. Then I was away, dodging back and through the bushes towards the men in the ditch, even more aware than ever before of the bullets singing overhead. With my back to a broad tree which hid me from the enemy front, I looked down at the upturned faces. There was no point in wasting at all in wasting time on details. The orders I had to give them were quite simple, devoid of any complications, such as who would provide covering fire. It was time for play acting again. My naturally loud voice carrying down the line of men above the sound of battles, I bawled at them to follow me, adding the comment that it is better to be killed going for the bastards than lying in that bloody ditch. No one hesitated. The men rose to their feet at the moment I stepped out into the open from behind the shelter of the tree. Glancing to my right, I was exhilarated by the sight of David Unwin's solid bulk running parallel to me and half a dozen of his men following. David shouted something to the effect that they were coming as well, and I waved my Sten gun in acknowledgement. Behind me, Sergeant Weiner broke into a scream of rage, harsh and furious. The yell spread down the line. Too heavily laden and too tired to sprint, we lumbered forward towards the enemy in a sort of jog trot. Now I was careless of everything. We did not stand a chance, but this was the right way to go. This was the proper way to finish it all. Nearly hysterical now, with rage and excitement, I heard my own voice join in the screaming. The Germans were shooting at us. I could see flashes of their weapons springing out of the gloom of the trees. There was no need to look back to confirm that the line of men was still following. The noise told me they were there. Now the Bosch were no more than 50 yards away. As I brought my Sten down to hip level to press the trigger, it flashed through my mind that it was the first time I had fired my weapon since the battle started. My forefinger squeezed the metal. Nothing happened. It had jammed. Here I was, running toward the enemy with a useless piece of metal in my hands. There were figures moving among the trees. First a couple, then a half dozen dark shapes were outlined against the green background. Men sprinting away, men disappearing through the trees. The Bosch were running away. We had done it. We had driven the enemy out at the point of bayonet. This was the ultimate in war. The sight of the savage, screaming parachutists streaming towards them had been too much for the Germans, even though they had to do nothing more than keep their heads and shoot straight. Yeah. So there you go. Surrounded, broken, and I think key point here, when you think you're broken, do something and do something aggressive. Yeah. That's that's the de- this is this is 100% default aggressive. That's yeah, what yeah. this is. You know what? We're here, we're being defensive, we're hiding in our slit trenches. Okay, you know what we're going to do? We're going to attack. Yeah. We're going to attack full force. Yeah. 
back to the book, the sight of David on the right added to my delight. Shouting to him to hold the right of the hollow, I directed Sergeant Weiner round to the left. There was no need to tell anyone to hurry. They all knew that the Germans would not delay in mounting a counterattack. A moan of terror distracted me. I turned to the wounded German. The man's features were contorted into a rictus of despair. Above him stood Sergeant Major Kelly, red-eyed and panting, his bayonet raised above the soldier's stomach. But Kelly did not strike. He was relishing the moment, snatching maximum pleasure from the wounded man's anguish before he sliced it, sliced into the soft belly. As my newly found Mauser knocked the bayonet to one side, the sergeant major snarled at me in an unspoken protest at such silly scruples. Then he seemed to shake himself. The bloodlust had passed, and he came to his senses, gathering his men to the defenses. So, again, he could, this guy goes from the pure fury and rage of this in, incredible bayonet assault, and then... He immediately just puts his one of his sergeant majors in check, who's about to, you know, ruthlessly kill this wounded guy. Mm. Very interesting dichotomy there. Mm-hmm. Back to the book. Something had been snatched back from the disasters of the day. The remnants of the brigade headquarters, together with a few stragglers from other units, had now all arrived. In all, there seemed to be about 150 men with a half a dozen officers, as well as the brigadier, David, and myself. There was Jimmy Gray. The latter brought news that the colonel was probably dead, although he could not be sure as they'd become separated during a scrimmage with an SP gun. Of the rest of the officers who had jumped with the battalion, Captain John Simmons, the gunner, forward observer, was the only one left. Continuing, after about 15 minutes, a lull in shooting suggested that I might now be able to get round to visit the battalion positions. The battalion. For the first time, it struck me that I was now in command of what was left of it. Pitiful remnants, but they are still fighting. The brigadier had allotted the south and west sides of the perimeter to us. The first pit held Sergeant Weiner with seven or eight men. At the bottom, his eyes shut, lay a gray-faced and motionless Private Gregory, shot through his stomach. Corporal Pritchard had bandaged him up and given him a shot of morphia, but because his airborne smock had been pulled down over his blood-stained dressing to keep as warm as possible, he lay there with no outward sign of injury, looking as a man might do who had collapsed with exhaustion. Gregory's eyes opened. When he saw who was standing over him, he asked for the favor. His voice was quiet, his words measured and coherent, his proposal quite logical. Out here, without the help of a doctor, he was going to die in any case, and he could stand the pain no longer. Would someone please put a bullet through his head? For the moment, my grip tightened on the Mauser. In Gregory's state, I probably would have been asking for the same release. If it did happen, I hoped that someone would have the guts to give it to me. Then I caught Weiner's eye, and he knew that I could not do it. The only way to help Gregory was to give him a further shot of morphia, dangerous though it would be to do so. 
as I reached for my own ampule. In the breast pocket of my smock, I was ashamed by my reluctance. The reason was purely selfish. Sooner or later, I might want to use it on myself, wounded and alone behind a bush with no one about to help me. But Sergeant Weiner came to the rescue. He had scrounged a couple, a supply of ampules from somewhere or another. Opening the small black tin, he bared Gregory's arm and pressed the needle home. The words of sympathy and encouragement sounded pitifully trite as I pressed Gregory's shoulder. Nervous of any reproach which I might see, I turned and walked away without looking at the wounded man's face. My name was being called. It was Private Jones. Slithering towards me down the opposite slope of the hollow, Jones told me quickly. It was Major Unwin, killed by a sniper. Shot through the forehead as he was peering over the rim of the hollow, trying to locate the whereabouts of a Spando machine gun. He had died instantly. Jones was adamant there was no doubt that he was dead. His brains had been blown out. Jones was urging me to come see his body, but I could not bring myself to do so. David could not be dead. They could not have killed David. Everyone else, yes. One after another, friends had died, but I never believed that this could happen to David. So vast, so indestructible, the humorous, gentle David. The brigadier was beside me. He had also heard the news. For nearly two years, he had known us both, and it was plain that he understood the anguish. But there were other things to think about. As we knew only too well, the brigadier told us, our ammunition was nearly finished. And as our own fire slackened, the enemy snipers were becoming bolder, and more men were being hit. Soon we would be forced to surrender, so we had decided to take the initiative. We would break out towards Oosterbeek, charging through the enemy in solid mass, trusting our numbers and impetus to get through. It was an extraordinary plan. For the second time that day, the brigadier was ordering us to do what seemed impossible. But our trust in the brigadier's judgment was now implicit. It was a gamble, but one which offered at least a chance of success. To stay here would only end one way. Fifteen minutes later, we were ready. It could have been the start of a race. The brigadier asked whether we were ready. Then, at his shout, the hundred of us rose to our feet and exploded in a solid mass over the lip of the hollow. In front was the brigadier himself, leading the way. Behind came the yelling, screaming men, filthy and blood-stained, weapons in their hands, bayonets dull and menacing, a fearful sight to anyone in our path. The German fire now seemed to be coming from every direction, but I saw no one hit. We were rushing downhill along a, a lane, a solid human battering ram. The first wild plate pace slackened. The firing stopped. We had done it. We were through the enemy and out of the forest. For the second time that day, boldness had saved us. 
once again some default aggressive activity and and I mean obviously I, I want to make it clear that in both in the both these situations it wasn't it wasn't a it wasn't a call of hey there's a there's a there's a objective we want to reach charge it mm-hmm. it was we can either sit here and do nothing and die or we can attack mm-hmm. Th- that's the, that's the big I don't want anyone out there thinking oh okay I'm just gonna every time default right. aggressive I'm gonna run and we're gonna attack no these are situations where the alternative to attacking is is being defensive laying down and dying and continue to get picked off and snipers until you get overrun yeah now they meet up with finally they, they meet up with these other British troop Back to the book, someone was leading us into a garden of a large house. The men dropped to the ground as they halted, conscious that they were now safe with houses and other British troops around them. Others, after a swig from a water bottle, lay supine, unconscious, in instant sleep. I counted them. Jimmy Gray, John Simmons, and Sergeant Weiner were there. Sergeant Major Kelly was missing. Someone had seen him fall in the rush. There were just 49 other men, about half from C Company. Last night there had been 200, the night before, 500. Now they're in these positions and they're about to get attacked. Just below in the garden but out of sight another Bren opened up. It was Jimmy Gray's sentry at the garden gate. There was a glimpse of a camouflage figure running through the trees opposite no more than a hundred yards away diagonally across our front towards the air landing troops then a couple more Jimmy's Bren fired again and one of the figures pitched forward rolling over carried on by its own momentum we would not we would have to fight and this is their they're talking he's talking about the fact that they're in the houses now in these in this village we would have to fight from the house itself not from the trenches in the garden it was a sturdy building with thick, solid walls, and in any case, the garden was too small for the purpose. From these upper windows, we would have an extra range and observation to fire diagonally down the road in front of the houses held by units to the left and right. Fifteen minutes later, the trim Dutch house had been wrecked. Every pane of glass had been smashed, and every picture and mirror knocked from the walls. There was no time to be careful. In the center of each room, barricades had been built well back from the windows out of sight of the Bosch, but sighted so that every scrap of ground outside was covered. Sideboards and chests of drawers stuffed with books or bedding made the barricades, contents of the furniture flung in heaps into the corners of the rooms. Mattresses were rolled down into the basement, ready for use if needed by wounded men. More books crammed into drawers were blocking those windows not required for shooting through. Fortunately, the owner of the house possessed a fine library. From its contents seemed he was a doctor. With Gray, I walked around the house for a final check before leaving to return to my own headquarters at the rear. Manic vandals might have swept through it. Some woman's life work ruined in the time it took to drink a cup of coffee. An explosion from above followed by the clatter of tiles falling from the roof drowned out the noise from the gun. Another bomb burst in the garden just outside the window sending a couple fragments whistling into the room. Now the Bosch were hitting us with mortars as well. 
a bullet splintered the empty frame behind me and buried itself in the ceiling, a warning that I was far too close to the back bedroom window. There was a sniper behind us as well as the spandel. A quick movement in the garden of the house caught my eye. Then two figures in the wrong sort of camouflage darted from behind a bush into the shelter of a wall. They were Boche, not British. So now the enemy was indeed all around us. There was no doubt about it now. John Simmons and his men were in the houses where they had been left that morning. John had made strong points out of a couple of houses, smaller but just as robust as the ones held by Gray. The two groups had been working closely together, largely I felt certain because of John's charm of manner and determination. This young gunner had done very well. It hardly seemed possible that most of his men hardly knew him by sight yesterday. Today he has welded the survivors of four different companies of a unit into, of another arm into a tight-knit entity, well capable of carrying on the fight. All day they had held firm, killing and wounding quite a lot of enemy, but losing only one man themselves, a corporal of A Company whose hand had been blown in half by a flying mortar splinter. Lined and filthy though his face was, eyes red-rimmed, and chin stained with three days worth of fair fuzzy down, John still moved briskly, a reminder to all of us that we could still keep going. So he's got guys that are stepping up big time. Inside the houses, we felt reasonably safe from the shells and bullets, but there was always some cause for the officers and senior NCOs to move about in the open from one building to another. It was the same as it had been in the woods. The officers and sergeants stood a greater greater chance of being killed or wounded as their men. All the same, it was easier for an officer. With so much to do, he had little time to worry about his own safety. Also, he always had to try and act the part to set an example to the others. An officer had to exude confidence however hard it might be. But because he always had to try to keep a grip on himself, it helped him forget the danger. Very true. Very true. Got a lot of things on your mind. They get a massive bombardment in these positions that they're in. Back to the book. The Germans must be softening us up in preparation for something more serious. Their ammunition seemed unlimited. The bombardment ended quite suddenly, rather as it had started. This would be it. Nudging Williams to get his head up from behind the barricade, I shouted a warning to the others, Elkins and Bauer in the next room, and the two signalers who had moved up to the bedroom at the back. The stutter of the Bren gun cut across the the words. Bauer's rifle thudded next door, and then Williams was firing a succession of bursts from his Bren gun. In the orchard opposite, Germans were running through the trees towards us. Several dropped. This could only be the start of an attack. Now from either flank, the sound of rifles and machine guns reached us, accompanied by the thud of exploding grenades. The attack was coming in all along our front. Some of the Germans among the fruit trees were firing back. A couple of rifle bullets splintered the front of the wardrobe. Then more gray figures were lumbering towards us through the trees. Some fell. Others ducked behind the puny trees. They didn't stand a chance. It was like shooting targets on the practice range. The Germans and the mortars had been forced to stop because their troops were so close. It was 
so it was imp- it was possible to fire slow, carefully aimed shots with little or no distraction. The only way out of the orchard was through the single gap in the high fence, but the enemy soldiers never got within 20 yards of it. A tall German officer was standing in the middle of the drive, out in the open, clear of the trees, waving his arms to the men behind him. No more than 50 yards away, every detail of his face and uniform was clearly visible. He was a handsome young man, fair-haired and smartly turned out. Already he'd been standing there for about five seconds, encouraging his men to advance. As I leveled my sights on the German officer, I knew that I was looking at someone who was just about to die. It seemed a pity. He was such a courageous boy, just the sort just the sort one would like to have had as a platoon commander. My fingers started to squeeze the trigger, but it was too late. Someone else had fired. The German fell, spread-eagled, and lay still. At least he died quickly. The death of the young officer marked the end of the attack. Now, no one moved in the orchard except for a single wounded man squirming his way back through the trees. So, it's interesting when you, you take the leader and the leader goes down and the attack's over. Hmm. Now, uh, also it's important to note that although the leader st- stood up and encouraged the attack by taking that risk of being out there in front of everyone, in this case it didn't work out well because he got shot, killed, and the attack faltered. Mm. Perhaps if he could have found a little bit better of a position to do that from, then yeah. then maybe then maybe he would have been able to encourage his troops and stay alive. Mm. Back to the book. But we had won no more than a temporary respite. 15 minutes later, we could hear the unnerving noise once again. Tracks were clattering towards us. So I haven't I, I don't know why I haven't talked about this yet, but here you have these airborne troops on the ground and Their biggest fear is tanks and, mm. and you've heard me talk many times about my love for tanks yeah. and How effective and awesome they are as tools and as weapons and the way that the tankers utilize them They're just they're just awesome machines mm-hmm but here you have the tables turned and and the good guys don't have real any effective way of stopping these tanks mm. you can shoot a machine gun all day long at a, at a panzer tank and it's not going to do a damn thing hmm. and so it can just and by the way you hide in a building cool a tank will go right through a building <laughs> they go right through buildings yeah. they will go right through a building like it looks like a construction piece of heavy equipment. Yeah. That's what it looks like. It'll go right through a building like it's nothing. So these guys are absolutely horrified of the tank showing up. Mm-hmm. That's their fear. Tra- tracks were clattering toward us. A gun thudded, and the dark red house opposite began to fall apart ra- as round after round crashed into it. Muzzle flashes from the far side of the orchard revealed the position of the attacker, but there was nothing we could do. At least the men were not waiting in the house, but slipping one after another out the door, back across the road to the headquarter house. 
on either side, the guns were firing. Now it was our turn. The the tank wrecks some of the houses, and then it the tank leaves. So here we go. It's, it was time to strike back. The tanks had gone, and as yet, the Boche did not appear to have occupied the houses. Lying out there in the rear gardens, overlooked from the windows, we were vulnerable indeed. Soon the mortaring would start again. Then we would be safer back in the ruined buildings. As John Simmons listened to the instructions, the young captain's manner was as relaxed as ever. Calm and outwardly self-confident, he somehow managed to give the impression that he was almost enjoying the morning's work. Possibly he was making that a point, subconsciously perhaps, that a gunner could always take charge of 30 infantrymen. But there were undoubtedly immense reserves of strength hidden behind that cool exterior. As he lay behind the bed of half-dead pea plants, scanning the houses for any sign of German occupants, there was no trace of disquiet in his voice as he discussed his orders to counterattack and clear the street of the enemy. Fifteen minutes after John had gone, I was still in the same place in the vegetable patch, watching the second hand of my watch creep towards the top of the dial. Then Gray's weapon opened up on the right, firing back in the back into the rooms of the houses, more in the hope of distracting the enemy than providing covering fire. The danger to John's men lay on the other side, the front of the houses. Now John's three Bren guns were firing as well on the left. The assault party would soon be moving into the street. It came. The sustained rattle of a Spandau gun. First one then a second. After that, there was silence, except for one or two rifle shots. I waited, lying in the vegetable patch, almost distraught with worry. Something was badly wrong. Nothing could be seen from here, but I had to resist the temptation of going to find out for myself what had happened. I must avoid getting involved in the skirmish. Then Corporal Day, now John's second-in-command, was running through the flower beds toward me. Day's face said everything, even before he started to speak. The attack had failed. It had failed the moment John had been killed. Out there in the middle of the street and ten yards in front of Day and the rest of the assault party, John had died in just the same way as that young German officer this morning. That had finished it. The rest of them, including Day, had turned and run, but in some extraordinary way, no one else had been hit. Day made no excuse, no attempt to excuse himself, telling the story factually and not trying to put a gloss on the incident. The implication was clear, they had been asked to do too much. So now I had been responsible for killing John as well. It had been so simple. I had issued the orders and then John had walked out into the middle of that road to be shot down by the machine gun. I should not have done it. The counterattack should never have been attempted. The men were no longer capable of making such an effort. 
They could still hang on to their positions, fighting from behind cover, but after six days of continuous battle, they lacked the will to get to their feet and go for the enemy. In the woods, it had just been possible to urge them forward in one last surge of willpower, but since then, they'd endured a a further 48 hours of death, starvation, thirst, and fatigue. And in the woods, it was men from my own company. Today, it had been different. Today, a mixture of men, survivors of four different companies, had been left to follow a gunner officer whom they hardly knew. There was a limit to what soldiers could be asked to do, and I had gone beyond those limits. And so, John Simmons had died. That's the burden of command. Back to the book. It was impossible to understand why the Germans were not using their armor to support this infiltration by their infantry. If they had done so, all resistance would have collapsed long ago and the tanks would have been on the lawns. The crushing news that the brigadier had been badly wounded came through on the telephone just before the line went dead once again. The Bosch were now among the houses and gardens which the glider pilots had been holding, and Gray had reported that he was being shot at from two sides at the same time. The quartermaster had also sent word that the enemy were behind him, and that he had long ago lost all contact with the recce on his left. They are just in a wretched state, and he goes to meet with the colonel in one of the buildings. The colonel seemed to be trying to break something to to us gently, and then it came out. It was hard to believe, harder still to understand. The division was to be withdrawn over the Rhine that night. It was all over. It had, been, it had only been possible to ferry about 250 men of the Dorsets over the river before dawn, a profitless addition to the perimeter garrison. The Second Army had overreached itself in trying to get to us, and although the troops were pouring northward, they lacked the strength to cross the river and continued the advance into Germany. Already the Bosch were hammering from the flanks at their narrow lines of communication. So the operation had failed. Everything had been in vain. It was all a waste. Listening to the outline of what had to be done that night, it was hard to concentrate on the details. The first emotion was grief, and then utter disappointment. The battalion had been destroyed to no purpose. And that's it. They get the order that night to leave. And they come up with a plan. They actually follow rope. They put rope at night down towards the river where they're going to get extracted. And at night, they attempt to follow 
that rope down there and of course along the way they lose more men men get separated men don't hang on they get lost and they lose even more men as they're trying to make it to their extraction point but he does end up with a small group of people at this extraction point there's Canadian boats there to bring them across the Rhine River back to the book the Canadians were already pulling the last men into the boat and I was standing with Harrison alone in the river when I heard Weiner's voice harshly insisting that no one would be left behind. The young coxswain needed no further urging but implored us to be careful as the boat was grossly overloaded. Then Harrison pushed me up over the side and the two of us flopped down behind the coxswain as the engine went into gear and the boat moved towards midstream. So now they get across the river, they get dropped off and and to answer your question earlier, once they get dropped off and they're on the other side of the, they're on the western side of the Rhine River, it's basically secure area. Mm-hmm. Even though it was only, you know, several hundred yards away, it was relatively secure. Mm. And now what they have to do is they have to march back about five miles to get to an even more secure base. Here we go back to the book. As we reached the track, which after a few hundred yards led us to the road. When I stopped, the men flopped to the ground, empty and lifeless, lacking any wish to go on. More parties of men appeared through the darkness, shambling in the exhaustion of relief. All terror ended, devoid of the willpower needed to summon up further effort. There was only one way to make the two-mile march bearable, an old-fashioned remedy. I called to Sergeant Weiner to fall the men in threes. The disciplined bark bounced back to me as Weiner pulled himself to his feet, shouting to the men to fall in. There was no trace of query or surprise in Weiner's voice, and the men shuffled to their feet. That's, that's your root training right there. That You're exhausted after eight days of continuous combat. You're just done. Mm-hmm. And the sergeant says, all right, on your feet, form a column of threes. And you do it. They get close to the end. I'm, now they can see the camp. Mm-hmm. And I halted them. There was only one way to end such a march. It was pointless, perhaps, but I decided to make the final gesture. Bringing them to attention, I ordered them to slope arms and to march by the left to attention. I sensed their appreciation as their shoulders went back. This was the way they always returned to camp. This was the way they always finished. As they stepped off for the last 50 yards, they were even swinging their arms. So they march back into this camp. Once they get into this camp, they get loaded up into uh, a vehicle, a big military transport vehicle that's gonna take them further to the rear where they can get some treatment. And they're loaded into that vehicle. And here we go back to the book the canopy of the truck now sheltered us but my shivering became uncontrollable I knew I was becoming lightheaded and could hear myself grieving aloud for those that we had left behind particularly for those who had been lost during the withdrawal down the riverbank there was silence in the truck then I heard as if from a long way off the voice of sergeant Weiner calm and flat saying that none of them would have got back if it had not been for me. 
it was true to say that I would never have got back if it hadn't been for them, but I shall always be grateful to Weiner for having said it. The next thing I remember was Weiner and Harrison half carrying me into what seemed to be a hospital. Someone was stripping off my clothes and dressing me in pajamas. Then I felt the prick of a needle in my arm. I was awake. The sun shining into the windows of the ward. An orderly brought tea and food on a tray. I lay between the clean sheets, looking at the torn and filthy garments on the chair by the side of the bed. There was nothing wrong with me now. I saw that my hand was wrapped in a clean bandage. When the nursing orderly came to remove the tray, he brought me the message that a soldier was waiting in the corridor to see me. As soon as the orderly left the room, I slipped out of bed and put on my clothes and went out into the corridor. Waiting there was Harrison, a broad smile on his face, telling me that Captain Gray and Mr. Elkins had turned up with eight of the missing men. Another 20 stragglers had also arrived from somewhere or another. But that was the lot. That was the battalion. Three officers and 43 soldiers. We walked out the door of the hospital side, side by side. The weak September sun shone down on the battered buildings. Away in the distance, the dull rumble of the battle still rolled down from the north. And once all the men were recovered, and that's that's the end of the book. And when all the men were recovered, and when you look at the actual battalion of the 156th Parachute Battalion, it looked like this. 313 men were captured. Many of those were wounded. There was 98 killed in action. And there was a total of 68 from the battalion that made it across the Rhine safely. And those 68 men, if they could heal up, were then sent to the other battalions inside the 1st Para-Brigade. And the 156th Parachute Battalion was actually disbanded. Mm. It ceased to exist. Jeffrey Powell went on to retire from the army the British Army in 1964 he retired as a major general he was awarded the military cross which is Britain's third highest award for valor and this is what his citation reads at Arnhem after his commanding officer had become a casualty major Powell took command of the remnants of the battalion up to this time he had conducted himself with the greatest gallantry For the remaining six days, he retained control of his unit and also of the men of other units in the area under the most difficult conditions. Heavy fire from mortars, artillery, and self-propelled guns never stopped his activity in getting round his section of the perimeter and encouraging his men to greater efforts. 
throughout the whole period of the Arnhem battle. In spite of being wounded, this officer showed himself to be a gallant leader of men and a most capable fighter and one whose bravery was a source of inspiration to the men under his command and to all those around him. And I think it's pretty clear that if you read a book like this, General Powell is still a source of inspiration, as are the rest of these incredibly brave men. And also a source of leadership lessons. Of what to do and what not to do and it's also an incredible reminder of that heavy burden of command and the fact of the matter is when you lead you own every decision and every action not only of yourself but of your men And with that burden, you owe it to them to be as well prepared, to be as tactically sound, and to be as physically and mentally strong as you can possibly be. And that goes for any leadership position. When you are a leader, be as prepared as you possibly can. And then you go out and you lead and you lead with courage and you lead with resolution and you lead with boldness. Boldness like Jeffrey Powell and the officers and the men of the 156th Parachute Battalion. Pretty amazing book that you know like I said I, I got this book f- six days ago or something mm-hmm. somebody just sent it to me and I gave it the um, the little tests when I kind of open books up because people send me a lot of books sure and I gave it the uh, I gave it the test you know I, I open up I read a couple sections and it immediately you know I'll give I'll fl- I'll open to a book in four or five different places to see what it reads like mm. um, and this, you know, within the first page, the first page that I read, I said, oh, we, it looks like we have a winner here. This mm-hmm. one's going to be on the podcast because it's just impactful. And the account now, the, in the back of the book, he talks about the, the individuals and in just read some of them off here. The brigadier was general. John Hackett the colonel was Dickie DeVoe of the Grenadier Guards his fellow Grenadier was Sergeant Major De- Sergeant Major Dennis Gay his Batman the guy that he talks about Harrison throughout the book the guy that's there from the beginning to the end yeah. always by his side that was actually a guy named Fred Tracy hmm. a guy named David N. Unwin in the book is the character in the book the real guy was named Michael Page who had been Powell's best man and whose son, Jeffrey, 
born posthumously had another son named Michael. And Luke Tyler and Sergeant Weiner and Jones and John Simmons, these were all real people. So, you know, this is another guy that uh, very similar to Major John Glover, who said he had a hard time writing about himself in the first person. You know, I did this and I did that. And yeah. that's the same thing that Powell said. You know, he had a hard time writing until he just made it about some other, he put made some other character in his oh, head okay. and yeah. wrote from that perspective. But, uh, man, you definitely, this book, I like I said, I read, I don't know, 5% of it. It's not a huge book, though, actually. Mm-hmm. It's only a couple hundred pages long, and it's a very fast read. Did you find it to give you this weird, stressful feeling reading now? Absolutely. Like, listening to it was, like, just more stressful. No, it, I was it is. Stressed. It is. And I was, I was debating when to tell you and when to tell everyone that, that, that this is not a good, that this isn't a good story, right? Yeah. That this isn't a positive thing. Mm. And... I, I kind of just I don't know when I actually said that hey, they're not gonna win I mean I said that the the operation market garden was it was a failure yeah. But you know, what does that really look like? You know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah, you don't yeah. know what that looks like until you get reading this book yeah. And then you start to feel what it feels like and absolutely and and when you read the whole book Man, it is just coming apart. It's just yeah. like little misfortune <laughs> little misfortune and they're just coming and and they don't stop yeah. They just don't stop mm-hmm. It's a it's a nightmare scenario and yeah, and there's tons of great lessons learned. It's so, it's so amazing because I never read this book before. I just got it. Yeah. But it's amazing. Cover and move. Yeah. Decentralized command. Yeah. Even, Prioritize and execute. Even that part when you're um, keeping it simple, right? Everything that that we learned, that you know, I should have learned this years ago. Yeah. And when I think about. You know, I was, you, you look back at your life, right? And you say to yourself, what could I have done better? What could I do different? And, you know, everyone in the SEAL teams, like basically you get one shot at each job. Other than just being a, a, a shooter in a platoon, that you can do three or four times sure. if you're lucky. Sure. But then once you get into a leadership position, you're like, you're an assistant platoon commander. You do that one time. Then you're a platoon commander. You do that one time. Then you're a task unit commander. You do that one time. Generally, some guys, sometimes guys, rarely guys do more than one of those. Same thing on the enlisted side. Guy gets to do an, a, a leading petty officer. Does that one time. Chief petty officer of a platoon. Platoon chief. Does that one time. Senior chief in charge of a task unit. Does that one time. You don't get to repeat the jobs. And so basically when you're finally getting good at your job, You're done and now you got to go get the next job up the chain of command Mm. So for me, it was always and now looking back and 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 even talking to talking to my seal buddies now like like how can we prepare them better? So they know What we had to learn during the job It's 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 a hard thing to do because because a lot of stuff you actually have to learn from experience Yeah, and and actually we talked about that at the last muster which is that was a big part that we talked about. You're, if you're gonna get good at something, you have two choices, experience or training. And training is a way to condense experience down mm-hmm. and distill it, and that's what was great about when, we, when I was running training on the West Coast. We, we got to really condense that experiential. Right, right. I mean, guys went, through, guys went through hellacious training and we're, we provide total chaos for them that most guys wouldn't experience that kind of chaos in their whole career yeah. or in 10 careers, but they would get it. Yeah. 
mm-hmm. and they would be, get pushed super hard. So that way, when they got out on the battlefield, they were ready for the for the chaos that was out there because yeah. we trained them and we pushed them f- further and harder during training than we hoped they would get pe- pushed on the battlefield. Mm. Yeah, it's crazy. Even that that cover and move, even when they're retreating, it's mm. like it showed like how you got to keep that yes. that discipline with keep that the discipline. It's kind of like you know, like in an MMA fight or something, and the guy starts getting hit on the inside, and rather than still covering up a little bit while he goes back, he like runs away or turns oh, his yeah, back yeah, or something yeah. like oh, yeah. that. You know, turn your back and, he'll and you're get done. cracked. Yes, yeah, turn your back and you're done. But great book, I definitely recommend it for your reading list. Yeah, there was a there was that part in there that the guy came up to, I think, reload ammo or something, mm-hmm. and the guy's sitting there. Oh you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's just so he gets like scolded or whatever, <laughs> and you know, it turns out he's wounded, right? He's yeah. Research. Like that's kind of that was an interesting little lesson there. Like you just don't know someone. No. You can't just start going no, off on. It's someone. totally true. And and I don't know if you remember somebody asked us a question one time about, you know, how do I these people that have had everything given to them? Yeah. And I, I and I you know I've had a I had a, I grew up in a tough neighborhood. Yeah. And it's like oh you 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 actually don't know what that right. person's been through. Yeah. And we had that whole discussion. Yeah, the and that's the same thing true on a day-to-day basis with yeah. every other human being that you're dealing with. You don't yeah. know what they're going through. You don't know what triumphs and tragedies they've had in their life. You don't yeah. know what just happened to them this morning. So the, the, the recommended course of action is you, you give someone a little bit of slack when yeah, you don't know them. You know? Yeah, you ever seen that that Seinfeld when he goes he goes to talk to no. the girl? Come on, bro. <laughs> it was actually it was it was pretty much this, but just on Seinfeld. So he goes to talk to this girl. He's like, oh, I gotta talk to that girl. She's hot or whatever. He goes up to her and he's like, he's like, hey, hey, hello, excuse me. And her back is kind of turned, you know. He's like, excuse me, hello, hello. Like getting and he starts to get real mad that mm-hmm. she's not listening to him. Finally, he walks like more close to her and she kind of starts to turn around. He's like, oh, so now you pay attention. What are you, deaf? And she's like, bingo, like signs to him. Oh. She <laughs> she is deaf. Yeah. You know, but you got to chill out. Yeah. You know? you find out about people first before you start. Make sure, that, make, sure make sure the regimental sergeant major isn't wounded in both legs <laughs> before you start dressing him down. I know. Yeah, yeah man. Hey, that's, man. That's, that's, a, that's a good thing. He put that in this book. You know, that's pretty humble. Yeah. For him to put this in this book. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that other part where they were all, what, like tired and stuff, right? Or they were defeated, essentially. They were actually, you mean when they were basically broken men? Yeah, and then they yeah. and they got up and they just tr- started charging, getting Yeah, nuts. default aggressive. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. Default, aggressive part, default aggressive part. That's like, um, like, you know why there's big centipedes? And they're like, (laughs) they're kind of like. How big are they? Are they like eight (laughs) feet long? No, no. They're bigger than like centipedes that I've seen here. Okay. Give me a figure. Like. Six inches? Twelve inches? Like it's six is like a normal big centipede. Six inches. And these But they'll get bigger. Anyway, they're, I mean, compared to you, you know, they're they're little bugs. They're little whatever. And you just step on it. But. Like when you start messing with it and it starts to get nuts, it's super intimidating. <laughs> I'm just saying. What, do they have it's teeth? Like that. <laughs> I don't know, but they can chase you out of your room. You got chased out of your room by a well, centipede? Well, anything, like even like a, like a wasp or, you know, like with these little things that are way smaller Actually, than you so, and they just get nuts and then and like you don't want to mess with it, you know? So Leif, Leif was over at my house this was a while ago, a couple yeah. of years ago, and uh, there was a lizard in my house, like about a, yeah, see. About a nine inch lizard. And so 
my son and Leif are going to try and catch this lizard. Mm. And and they're being weak, man. They're like, <laughs> yeah, they're exactly. like, they're like, oh, you know, they're like, oh, wait, wait, no, grab yep. it, get a box on it, and all this yeah. stuff. So I come in, Mister Tough Guy. Yep. I come in, reached. I go, just grab that thing, you wussies. Reach down. I reach down to grab this thing. This thing turns its head yeah. and bites yeah. my thumb. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> and I screamed <laughs> like uh, like the Jim Carrey, like ah. Oh! Yeah, yeah, and I flicked my hand. It was it was absolutely hilarious because I yeah. went from being a big tough guy to screaming, um, oh! <laughs> and having a lizard bit onto my finger. Drew yeah. blood, yeah. by the way. Yeah, I, yeah. This, this thing deep. drew blood. Yeah, yeah, on my thumb. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I was default aggressive, but it didn't work out. The, the 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 lizard was more default aggressive than I was. Yeah, see, and the, and that is funny. That's a funny story <laughs> for a couple of reasons, in my opinion. But that is the exact same concept, though. You know, where if you would have, like how you said in the book, just kept your head, you smashed that lizard. That yeah, lizard well, if I wanted to catch it alive, I wasn't trying to kill it. Yeah. But still, I should have been more aggressive. Like, the bite the bite didn't even hurt, right? Yeah. I just shocked me. Yeah, it yeah. It just shocked it was just me that this I'm not thing, ready for all yeah, this. Yeah, I wasn't ready for the, the the gnashing of the teeth. Getting nuts, man. Yeah, those lizards, we have a lot of those, especially when it gets hot. Those, I mean, I'm assuming it's the same kind. There are these, uh, but here's the thing. Growing up on Kauai, there's these things. They call them, we call them chameleons, but they're like anole, anole, A N O L E. That's how you spend, spell it. They, they turn green or brown or whatever, and mm-hmm. they get they get pretty big, and they're super aggressive. <laughs> like when you grab them, oh, that's the first the red thing comes out of their neck, Dang. and they start biting you. And you get them to when you hold them after a while, they start to calm down. And uh-huh. I think they just start to get sick and stuff. I don't know. I don't know. But they calm down. So you can do this thing where basically, okay, if you, if you have a lizard's head, you go like this. And he'll go like that. He'll try to bite you. Uh-huh. So what you do is when he calms down, right when you grab him, he's trying to kill you. But when he calms down after, I don't know, three, four minutes, you do that and he'll, he'll keep kind of like. He'll do it less and less and less. Less and less. He'll always do that, though. But uh-huh. he'll just be a lot less aggressive. And then if you put your finger in his mouth, he'll bite you. And he won't let go. So... You got to kind of drag your finger out and yeah, it'll, it can cause blood or whatever. But what we do is, and you can see pictures of this. We do that and we put it on, put the lizard on our ears. So the lizard would be. An earring. An earring. Yeah. Biting your ears. You'd have two lizards hanging down. But anyway, the point there being. (laughs) Fun. fun If you can keep your, yeah. in uh, Yeah. When you grow up with that stuff, like those lizards are not scary. Even Mm. if they're aggressive and some of them, they get pretty like big and bulky and they're like dang this thing has some power to it this little lizard you know and but even here when it, when i grab them they're like oh no i wouldn't have screamed like you well, yeah I plenty of experience it's like yeah, that lizard got me dude <laughs> it was awful it was awful well um being prepared i guess is what we're talking about yes. being aggressive why don't you get default aggressive with letting anybody know if they want to support this support. podcast maybe how they could do it also support Jocko's traumatizing experience with lizards. With lizards. Yeah, biting his fingers and him screaming. Ah. Wait, who was it? Leif and who? It was Leif and my son. Yeah, did did they lose respect for you that time? A little uh, bit. Maybe, oh. Well, it's, it's actually funny because Leif always uh, talks about, you know, me being calm. And that's why he laughed so hard. <laughs> we, we were driving one time and we almost got in a car wreck. He was driving, actually. And I'll have him tell the story, but we hit mud and we hit... We were out in the desert. We were going 65 miles an hour on a back road, back by all these farms. And it was 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning, something like that. And normally these roads are completely dry. They're in the desert. And we're hauling. 
and Leif's driving, I think he's driving his truck. Yeah, he was driving his truck. We're hauling, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we see we see a, a big 18-wheeler on the side of the road, on the mm-hmm. opposite side of the road, but it's yeah. a narrow road. Yeah, yeah. And as we're hauling, all of a sudden, we hit a, a water, like oh, a, yeah, like yeah. a water, like probably a, a couple inches deep of water yeah. with mud, because it's what happened somewhere irrigation from all this farmland had broken and there was this flood and so we hit this thing and we're immediately hydroplaning <laughs> and and Leif is from Texas Leif is from Texas yeah. so he's not used to driving in the snow I grew up driving in the snow in New England you know you just you just deal with it everyone's like a rally driver up there yeah yeah that's so and so and so Leif he he's not really used to this mm-hmm. and he starts to oversteer the car, which is really, really bad. Yeah. And you know, I'm sitting there, and we're going 65 miles an hour. He, he, he's funny when he tells the story too, because he's like, we, we thought we were gonna die. He yeah. thought he's like, we were definitely gonna die. Yeah. And I'm sitting there in the passenger seat, and I, and I say, uh, don't oversteer, don't oversteer, <laughs> no brakes, no brakes. All right, you're good. Because yeah. that's the other thing mistake you can make if you jam on the brakes. Yeah. You're yeah. gonna lock it up, and you're gonna slide. You're gonna lose yeah. control. So I just no, don't oversteer, don't oversteer, no brakes. Yeah. No brakes. All right, you're good. <laughs> so that was yeah. not my reaction when I got bit on the thumb by the lizard. <laughs> ah! It was hilarious. Yeah. Dang, bro. Yeah. It's all good. But, hey, man, you know, if you want to support this podcast, mm-hmm. how about this talk about that? Possible. Do it. So, one good way and support. This is the, well, okay, this is what it is. Origin, right? Origin, the brand. OriginMain.com. That's the website. They got a lot of cool stuff. One of the cool items, actually, there's a bunch, are geese for jujitsu. I remember back when, um, kind of when we first started this thing. Mm-hmm. That's that would be the main question about jujitsu is oh, what kind of yeah, gi. Yeah. And I'd be like, oh yeah, there's these, and I give them the, the the three, the top. Actually, there was there's four of them, and it was shortly after where you recommended this, these origin ones. Mm-hmm. And then when I went there, I was like, oh, shoot, this, this is kind of expensive. I don't know, you know. But then the, I just looked at the one that was like, the, it was like the first one I saw. Mm-hmm. But there are many varying prices of geese. And they're all good, by the way. I know this because I have some. <laughs> Nonetheless, if you're still wondering what kind of gi to get, origin gi. Hundred percent. You have um, options, you know, as far as pricing and stuff like that. If you want the deluxe one versus the more basic one, but they're all dope. And here's the thing about them: they're all made in America, and not in the sense where they're just kind of assembled in America, but so you know, the materials are sourced somewhere else. The materials are sourced. Would you call them sourced? Yeah, I guess the raw material. The raw material. Comes from Tennessee, yeah, South Carolina, South Carolina, somewhere here, America. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I know that America. Boom, brought over to Maine, assembled, loom, or what? Not loom, loom. Yeah, that's not a verb, right? Yeah, woven on a loom. Boom into this outstanding material, moisture. What do you call it? Wicking, wicking. Right. That's when it it kind of like helps. Yeah. With moisture. Yeah. I didn't know all this, by the way. I'm like being educated on it, and there's a lot to know, by the way. Um, and I, antimicrobial—that's a big deal. Anyway, OriginMain.com. That's where you get cool stuff. There's other stuff too, like rash guards and even like clothes, regular clothes, athletic wear. It's dope. Anyway, all made Amer- in America. Boom. Also, 
for some legitimate fitness gear on it dot com slash jocko i just got the i know i'm into kettlebells i know i said that before i'm gonna say it again what is yours what is your heaviest kettlebell the one you have 40 kilograms right so it's 88 pounds Mm -hmm. dang mine's 90 by the way i have two of them (laughs) (laughs) do you only have one do you only have one i only have one currently all right right, well shoot i guess you know it's clear what i gotta do maybe i'll get another one step it up but um shoot who was i talking to about it Oh yeah, Morgan. You know Morgan. Yeah. Right. We're talking. We're talking about kettlebells. Morgan's Morgan's feeling strong. I told him that yesterday. Yeah. Not not just because that's it's kind of a insult in jujitsu. Yes. Right. To yeah. say like, hey, you feel really strong. It's an right? insult. It's an insult. Yeah. But I I made it perfectly clear yesterday. I was like, hey, you feel jujitsu strong. I yeah. said. It's not. I'm not trying to say you feel strong, like mm-hmm. hey, you're a meat, you're a meathead. Right. But you feel strong in a positive way, because. And I said, here's the deal. If it was just you being strong, then five years ago when I started training with you, I'd be like, oh, you feel strong. I didn't right. say it then because you didn't feel strong. Yeah. You feel strong now that your jiu-jitsu is getting, yeah, getting yeah. better and and you're getting more skills. Well, uh, yeah, I feel like we got to ter- come up with a different expression or maybe just a modified expression because some people, yeah, like they'll. People tell me I'm strong or whatever. And after a while, I was like, wait, I felt the same thing that you feel. Yeah. One time I told you, like, you're strong. I thought it was kind of maybe subconsciously, I thought it was kind of established that, okay, look, you're really good at jujitsu. You know, I yeah. thought that was kind of a given. So if I were to tell you you're strong, oh. it'd be kind of like. Did I like you know, rebut you? Yeah. Was I like, oh, yeah. On. I was like, oh, well, you're like, I no, just... my technique. You're just like, no, my technique. I was like, yeah, no, no, I know that. I know your technique is outstanding. God, I got but defensive. Yeah, a huh? little bit. Not in an angry way or nothing like that, but. That's but, yeah. pretty funny, actually. So I'm surprised be... I wasn't a, a little bit more sarcastic about it. See, okay, and which you brings know, me to I, my I'm point. surprised I didn't say, yeah, I'm glad I'm so strong. Yeah. That I can just you know what destroy I say you like when that. people say it and I know people don't mean it. I know they don't mean that. You know what what how we take it. Mm-hmm. Kind of like you're strong it's, yeah, yeah, it's no. your your physical strength not your jiu-jitsu technique. That's right. what what we take it as, yeah, you yeah. know? And they're just throwing it in like how I, essentially how I did with you is kind of like, look, you're better than jiu-jitsu than me. You you beat me up all the time. But in addition to that, on top of that, <laughs> you're pretty strong too. Yeah, I that's probably what people are saying most of the time. But so when people be like, dang, you're strong. You're great. You, when they say you're strong, I say, yeah, I lift a lot of weights. Yeah. So it kind of gives them the impression kind of like, yeah, my weightlifting basically beats your jujitsu kind of thing. Oh. And that's a more of an insult, you know, kind of thing. But oh, it's it's a joke, really. Yeah. You know? uh, nonetheless. So, yes, Morgan, he's strong. Jiu-jitsu is strong. strong. Jiu-jitsu is strong. strong. Yeah. So his technique is strong. So that means his technique is getting better, and it and it reveals right. His it can deliver the strength in the proper way. Yeah. Yes. Good job, Morgan. But we were talking about kettlebells. Yeah. And he was like, "Bro, kettlebells are hard." So I started to feel kind of good because I got this ninety-pound one, and I was like, Shh. "I lifted it up, and you know, okay, you know this, the one hand, boom, clean, mm. what do you, clean press. Is there a, if a you name use your for that? legs?" If you use your legs to snap it up there a little bit, yes, that's the clean and jerk. Okay. Even one hand. If you just do, if you don't use any legs and you just power it up smoothly, that's a press. Okay. So mine was clean and jerk. I tried yeah. to use the whole kind of body or whatever. So my Metcons, I do, when I got the werewolf ones, those are like 62 pounds. I do two at a time. Boom, boom. Okay. Easy. And you do reps, you know, it's a whole yeah. thing. So I got this, the gorilla ones, 72 pounds. 
and mm-hmm. I could do that one just as you get strong, you know. Mm-hmm. So I get the ninety pound one. I'm like, I only got one too. So I don't know. Do you think two at one time is easier because of the balance? No. Right? No, it's no? not easier. Just I mean, you're using more energy for sure. But as yeah, far as like no, doing the balance, I no, feel like not easier. Yeah. Okay. Well. So one is easier doing one. One is for sure easier. Oh, okay, good. Well, okay, gotcha. So I got one big foot that's ninety pounds, and I lifted that up. I was like, man, I'm not ready. I'm not, ready. <laughs> I'm not ready for that. And so it was like maybe two, three days later. I was like, well, I gotta try. That's the only, you know, I got the seventy-two pound one. I can do that, you know, a bunch of times actually. But so I just warmed up a bunch and just first time I did it, like I straight up failed. I couldn't do it. And I was like, all right, all right. I know how it feels now and all this stuff. And then then I could do it. Boom, both sides. So you're good with both. Boom, yeah. That's good. Solid. I'm glad we all know that now. Yep. (laughs) Hey, you know, it's relevant. Just saying. Actually, which is actually what makes kettlebells kind of fun to do is because it does require legitimate technique. Yeah. Like you can't, like it's hard. It's like a dumbbell or a barbell or a machine. Well, if you're doing barbell snatches it takes a hell of a yeah, lot of time totally. and that's really the spectrum you know so if you go yeah, like kettlebell doing... and dumb because dumbbells are straight up balanced i mean they're yeah. not they're not like a but they have a handle both sides of the handle equal amount of weight you know boom you just have to balance your body and then after you get that balance down it's pretty easy barbell even less because you don't have two sides got to be balanced it's just one long thing and then two sides of that is balanced. Then you go machine you don't even need balance you just need the strength to push so it's that spectrum so the kettlebell way on this side of the spectrum where it kind of there's the game within the game you know that's what makes it more fun i think you see progress in both areas technique and strength <laughs> anyway we'll leave it at that if you want the cool kettlebells on it.com slash jockle or jump ropes battle maces the way do you call them battle maces or just maces I call maces. Them maces yeah those are kind of cool. clubs. Yeah, though you can get some cool workouts with that, and they do, like your forearms get. I, I, I didn't look into like what exactly you know they're gonna improve, but I know core strength and all this stuff. But there's all these little things they improve too. Outstanding stuff. Also, good way to support. If you're gonna get this book, men. At how do you how do you pronounce the, the place Arnhem. Arnhem Arnhem or Arnhem Yep Arnhem Okay Men at Arnhem Jeffrey Powell That's how I pronounce it anyways I apologize to anyone that's from Holland Yeah and pronounces it a different way I looked at it on YouTube and how they said it and it was like they say oh how to pronounce Arnhem and there's 14 different ways to say it Yeah So yeah. I just rolled the dice and picked one that sounded easiest for me to say So sorry if uh, I'm saying it wrong Yeah man No all good. Um, but if you want to get that book or any other uh, book that Jocko reviews on the website, just go to jockopodcast.com. On the top menu there, click on books from episodes. All the books are listed there by episode, along with a few other things, but mainly just the books from, uh, from, by episode. You click through there, boom, takes you to Amazon. Get those books there. That's a good way to support. That's the Amazon click through. Or if you do any other shopping, if you're getting a tripod or a video camera <laughs> or duct tape or whatever, click through there. Boom. That's a good way to support. Great way to support. Also, a little addition there. You know how we had the uh, website jockopodcast2.com? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a, there's a long story. I think I went into it. It was like when I was like testing like mm-hmm. what website provider or whatever. I was like, let me get this one because what if I'm attached to it? It's a long story. 
And then, so we ended up getting jockpodcast.com and they're both kind of there. But jockpodcast2 is kind of the, the, the primary one. Mm-hmm. It's not the primary one anymore. Jocko Podcast. It's jockopodcast.com. Okay. Cool. So that's, that's the good. website. And that was actually a trooper that straight up got us jockopodcast.com. Yeah, looking out for yeah. us. Cause, and then that's a big deal. We saw him in New York. Good dude. Yeah. That's a huge deal because, um, like, do you have your own name? Yeah. Okay. So people will be like, oh, this guy's blowing up. He'll, they'll go and they'll buy the domain name, either hold on to it or immediately go to you and be like, hey, you want to buy this for me? <laughs> Might be. Yeah, they'd hold it hostage. Yeah. In fact, I think there might be like a legal like defense against it. Like if someone gets your name or your, your kid's name mm-hmm. and you're kind of a public figure. So I mm-hmm. think. I'm not sure. But yeah, that's what people do, man. Yeah. They'll, or they'll buy a bunch of domain names that sound cool and yeah. they'll be like, yeah. You can buy this from me, kind of thing. It's it's super whack when they do it with like your, you know, when they know like that's you, you, your company. You, the or UFC had for a long time. They I don't know what they paid for. Eventually paid for UFC.com, but for a long time they were like UFC.tv and all these yeah, other UFC. Yeah. But all finally they had to step up. I bet you they, I bet somebody made a lot of money off that one. Yeah, UFC, especially the three letters. I yeah. guess like if you get the like, less letters, the, less the more letters. money. Crazy town. Nonetheless, but yeah, jockopodcast.com. That's the main website now. If you were going to jockopodcast2.com, it's it's not that anymore. Does Jocko it send Podcast. you though over? Uh, it it does, did, but well, while I'm switching, I'm doing this thing. It will eventually. It will eventually, yes. Right but now, if right. you run into that, that's why. Got people it. have been hitting me up, and rightly so. Thanks for that. Um, so yeah, nonetheless, back to the point. If you want to support uh, by getting these books, go through the website. And click through there. It's a good way to support small action. Huge reaction. Small, huge. That's how it works. Also, subscribe to the podcast. iTunes, if you haven't already. Stitcher, if you don't use iOS, iPhone. Google Play. Any anywhere they where they provide uh, podcasts. Boom, we're on there. So subscribe. That's a good way. Also, YouTube. Yes, I put some excerpts on there. More excerpts. I'm going to continue to do so. Shareable excerpts. Try to keep them under four minutes. That's cool, right? Four? Yeah. Might be a little long, but. I, every once in a while, you get it like a good like 10 minute one, though. For That's sure. the thing. Yeah. But they're more shared, better than two That's hours. That's a long time, though. Yeah. Think about the videos that you, you want to get compression. Three yeah. minutes, four minutes tops. Yeah. And it depends on the. Do you, you should edit them, maybe. Mm. Like make them shorter. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if it's appropriate, because sometimes you don't want to, sometimes it's just you saying like a whole thing mm-hmm. and it's like, okay, that's solid. And sometimes it's you and then my rebuttal to kind of, kind of bolster the point, your point, because mm-hmm. you'll clarify it because I, you know, and it's all, it's, it, it makes sense. So sometimes if you edit certain things out, maybe the message isn't there Check. as much as maybe Understood. it should be. Not all the time, not all the time, but most of the time. Nonetheless, I'll look into it. How about that? <laughs> Ideally, if a video, and this goes along with like people's typical attention span, it should be what like about a minute and a half. I don't know, but my attention span's getting tested right now <laughs> <laughs> by support. Just saying, we this, this is important stuff. We need to go over this so we can come to the best um, conclusion on how to conduct ourselves in regards to YouTube excerpts and other things. Nonetheless, subscribe to the YouTube channel. It's good. We're going to uh, provide value. How about that? No. 
also <laughs> if you're into the video version because some people are some people are into more the video version of the podcast yeah you know boom subscribe if you haven't already youtube also jocko has a store it's called jocko store jockostore.com if you didn't already know um on there we got some cool stuff shirts mainly some rash guards i just made an order for hoodies thicker heavier fall is coming are we in fall right now the fall was the first yeah, day of fall was yeah, like the other day yeah. we are in fall yeah so we got some not that we're doing a whole seasonal thing i'm just saying it's fall now getting cool getting cooler check got some hoodies on there got some shirts on there got some rash guards on there i think i'm gonna do a warrior kid rash guard mm. i have one yeah i know I saw but that. it's not in production yet yeah and it's not i'm gonna change it a little bit some coloring stuff and whatever but it is pretty cool good good little pre-response um also hats on there and some other cool stuff i'm not saying get something i'm saying go on there check it out if you want to support and you want to get something you think something is cool for yourself or for your you know friend wife girlfriend neighbor whoever then get something good way to support actually great way to support also psychological warfare okay what psychological warfare is if you don't know it's an album with jocko tracks (laughs) so basically if you're on your campaign against weakness and you have a moment of weakness this is like a little spot so basically you put on these audio tracks to let you know hey pragmatically don't skip this workout today. Hey, don't slip on this diet today. Hey, your procrastination isn't working, and here's why. But it's Jocko telling you, so it's kind of like more effective, way more effective. 100% success rate in my experience, 100%. That's legit. Yeah. Uh, hey, also, Jocko White Tea, if you want it, you can get that on Amazon. It tastes good, and it makes you feel good. Also, on originmain.com, you can get Jocko Super Krill, Krill Oil. That will make you feel good. Yep. And on top of that, you can get Jocko Joint Warfare, which is awesome. What's in that, by the way? It's glucosamine, chondroitin. Okay, Those okay, are the, yeah. the, main, the main, but then we put some additional things in there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it's, it's been rocking. It, yeah. it, it's, it's, it's awesome. Mm-hmm. You've got books. Or I've got some books if you want to read them. One is called Way of the Warrior Kid. One is called Extreme Ownership. The Warrior Kid book is for kids. Extreme Ownership is for people in leadership positions or people that want to be in leadership positions. There's also a new book coming out called Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual. It actually comes out October 17th. And at one point, many months ago, October 17th seemed like it was a long ways away, but it's not anymore. Mm. It's here. So you can order that one. It is unlike any book that you have ever seen or read. Also, what's interesting about this book is people keep asking me if it's gonna be on Audible. It is not gonna be on Audible. Hmm. Instead of being on Audible, it is gonna be on iTunes, it's gonna be on Amazon MP3, it's gonna be on Google Play, it's gonna be where you can find MP3 tracks. There's a reason for this. If you do it through Audible, you get this one big long book and it's and what the book is the way the book is written it's written to be 
chunked up and you're gonna want to take parts of it and play it at certain times more like you would do with the psychological warfare album so people were asking for more psychological warfare that's what we're doing discipline equals freedom field manual it's going to be available as an album that you can buy and then you can do what you want with the tracks you can make them your alarm ringtone you can listen to them out of order in any order you can put them in a mixed you can do a lot more stuff with them that's why we're doing it as an album with tracks instead of as an audible book so you know what we might you know people might have a little challenge finding it or realizing you know when they go on to amazon or they go on to barnes and noble they won't see that it's available they'll be looking for the audible and you won't be able to find it i'm sorry yeah. well just in audible i think that's where they won't necessarily you won't find be able it. to find it in but, the audible platform right it will right. not be there. but it'll be on amazon just it'll like, be on amazon yeah. but you i don't think it'll be linked in right. to the same thing where you go oh here it is i think yeah, it's gonna yeah. be hidden it's, it's gonna be hard to find kind of like it's hard to find on itunes it's hard to find psychological warfare but yeah. the question is do you want to do or did i want to do something right or just do something easy yeah, that's true. Because the the field manual, like any field manual, like when you want to go refer to it, you don't want to be searching yeah. around, especially you, in an audiobook. Yeah, you, in you audiobooks. Know, you're gonna be like, okay, what is that one part? You know that deals with this, and you, boom, you can just go to the yeah. That you just part. look for yeah. the track name, and Makes you're there. Sense. So, uh, like I said, it, we could have done the easy thing, and and whatever, you know, had everyone just been able to click on it real easy. I'm, I apologize, but if you want the right way, then that's what I had to do. So that's that book, and then. Echelon Front, that's the leadership consulting company that I have with Leif Babin, with J.P. Dinell, Dave Burke. If you want to have us come and work with your business, contact info at echelonfront.com. And if you have any questions or if you have any answers or if you just want to continue this conversation, you can find us on the interwebs, on Twitter, on Instagram, and on Facebooky, Echo is at Echo Charles, and I am at Jocko Willink. And finally, thanks to everyone out there for making this podcast possible. To those of you in the military, especially those right now on the forward line of our own troops facing evil every day, thank you for providing this freedom that we enjoy and to the first responders in law enforcement in fire and EMS thank you for taking care of us while we are here at home and the rest of you that are out there that are working and building and producing and creating and leading keep leading keep stepping up keep taking on challenges and keep striving to do more and to be more keep picking up the pace and keep pushing harder and no matter what the odds or what the probabilities keep getting after it so until next time this is echo and jocko out